If I'm there and I gotta put you away, I won't like it. But I'll tell you, if it's between you and some poor bastard whose wife you're gonna turn into a widow, brother, you are going down. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Directors Club podcast. We're back. I didn't know if that would happen or not, but we are back. We uh, resolved our issues. Yeah, we rectified Jim, things. Jim uh, rescued me from my uh, my little church meeting that I uh, had, were going, was going to. Patrick, it yeah. was a cult. It was, well... I, I'm, t- I'm telling you right uh, now, let's, look, it was a cult. Jim... I called you out on it. We have a president... I, I feel like we were talking to John Hawks for a while. Yeah, and- we have a presidential nominee right now who's a Mormon, all right? Uh, <laughs> some would say that's a cult, you know? I'm but, sure a lot of... Legitimate churches have, you know, fully automatic weapons in the basement. That doesn't mean it's a cult. But whatever, I'm, 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 I'm not talking to Manx uh, anymore, uh, as per uh, our agreement. And now we're back uh, in kind of a, you know, director's club after hours, uh, which is appropriate because uh, we're talking about a director. I we deprogrammed you basically is what <laughs> yes. we're trying to say. I you know what? Let's just move on. Let's just move on. Yeah, from we're, that. we're happy to move on. We're yeah. ready to be back we're talking, in, for a traditional format again. Because we're talking about a director who deals with a lot of films that take place at night. He's the in man. The late. Yes, and uh, Michael Mann. And we're here with one of our favorite guests. You know him from the David Mamet episode. You know him from the oh Peter my, Weir. Yeah, Peter Weir episode. Uh, Brendan Leonard. Brendan, how are you doing? I'm well. How are you guys? Excellent. Hey, Brian, real quick, how excited are you that Savages is a movie? Uh, I was more excited when I saw the poster than I was after I saw the trailer, and um, I'm less excited about it now than I was after before seeing the trailer. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No, it's true. Um, I do hope that, you know, that they are just... I'm hoping this is sort of a... I'm hoping this is Scarface Oliver Stone. I think it's U-Turn Oliver Stone, which yeah, might be I bad. Yeah, I mean, when I was reading the book, that's and they said Stone was directing it. Um, U-Turn Oliver Stone is kind of what I'd like to see, but I also think that the book is so thematically rich and meaningful that uh, Oliver Stone just playing up the, the crazy elements of it might not be the best thing for it. I wanted it, mm. you know, something... I mean, I've said this before, but I really think they should have given it to a younger guy, someone, you know, either our age or a little bit older because of, of some of the book's thematic uh, resonances. But I also think that on its surface, the story is one that's been told many times before, and the beauty of the book is, is how it's told. So it might not completely translate well. I don't – Oliver Stone's in kind of a weird place in his career. I mean, yeah. not, not this is the Oliver Stone episode, but it is – like at this point, he did World Trade Center, and he, which was like a weird cop out yeah. kind of a like, and then he did, awful. and then I he know. did W, which like which I actually liked a lot. I I enjoyed it, but it did feel often like sort of an extended SNL sketch at times. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, I thought it was interesting in that it's Oliver Stone who is known as being this iconoclast and is known for not being you know quiet when it comes to his political ideas, and I thought that. There were a lot of ways that movie could have gone wrong. I mean, just look at World Trade Center. And, you know, I I, I came away from it uh, and thinking with a lot more affection for 
the, the former President Bush than I think I had going into it. And I've since kind of knew that I've since dialed that back some, but I think it's it's a remarkably fair portrait uh, in a lot of ways. Yeah, hmm. no, that's, that is a good point. It is, like, way less uh, full of, you know, piss and vinegar than you would expect right. from Oliver Stone. Yeah. Um, I, 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 I mean, think... <laughs> not to continue this digression, but it's a really... It's a sad movie in a lot of ways. I mean, I've said for years that the best thing that could have ever happened to George W. Bush is if he was appointed commissioner of baseball, and I think both baseball and the country would have been a lot better off if that were the case, but... Not to digress. But he dropped the ball, or he didn't catch right. the, the ball. Whole, the reason we got on the whole conversation <laughs> in the first place was uh, that Brendan Leonard is actually, uh, in addition to running BrendanMLeonard.com, uh, yes, he, he was actually quoted on the uh, the cover of Savages. Or Is it The Savages? Or? It's Savages, yes. Okay, just Savages, which, uh, which delights oh, cool. me to no end. Um, because I think I think I think everyone's secret dream, anyone who like writes about art or whatever is to be like mm-hmm. have a pull quote quoted well, somewhere. My pull quote is also on the back of the guy's um, most recent novel, and he's also got a prequel to Savages coming out around the time of the movie. Uh, so we'll see. But you know that I have my issues with a lot of of criticism being very uh, egocentric and very all about the eye. And yeah. of course, the one pull quote that I, I, I've had is, is all about me and my generation and what I think. <laughs> it, was, you know, it, was, uh, it was unfortunate that your uh, one uh, Drew McWeeny moment got got immortalized oh. on a book. <laughs> yes, that that's true. The, the, the man responsible for turning me... Well, one of the, one of the film critics that kind of turned me into the movie freak that I am, uh, Nick DiGiulio of WGN Radio. He has the uh, honor of having a quote on the movie box for Cabin Boy. And his quote is simply, very funny. <laughs> that is it. Um, I think he was also on the quote, for, or on the box for uh, In the Mouth of Madness. He's actually, mm-hmm. like, that was a big deal for him. Because John Carpenter's his favorite director. It's always weird when there are people that you've had conversations with, like, quoted on promotional materials. Uh, yeah. Anyway, let you know what. You know what? One other thing. I We usually kind of... We're all out of whack today. I'm going on four hours of sleep, and it's just been a crazy time. It's, it's 10.42 where we are. It is 11.42 where Brendan is, and we do apologize, Brendan, that we've started so late. Yeah. It, it's fine. I may have to drop my voice as we continue just not to wake up the neighbors, but... That's so. fine. Oh, that's fine. I mean, uh, I just want to say, like, uh, a couple of things in, in terms of in-house items. Uh, I, w- I just want to reiterate the fact that, um, you know, throughout the summer, we're going to be pushing up more bonus episodes and you know they're they're either going to be individual film reviews of either new releases or something that you know we just talk with a guest on over Skype about one particular movie because people were big fans of the Breaking Bad bonus episode and so expect that and along with hopefully in the future some more interviews with actual directors yeah you know we actually have some lined up that when Jim told me, I didn't believe it. So it's, uh, it's absolutely true. And stay tuned uh, after this episode comes up for a bonus episode that uh, I'll be interviewing a, a, a Chicago director. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's going to be exciting for everybody, I think. And I, the one we do definitely have down is I will be talking with Daniel Kibblesmith. Um, oh our, yeah, our good friend Daniel Kibblesmith about the Avengers and the other Marvel films because he is. Because I think I think it's sort of an interesting thing they've done, and he's a comic book nerd, so it's 
you know, he'll be able to give a perspective on them that I won't. The man who introduced us to Manx. I yeah. don't know if well, I, yeah. let's let's move on. We can forgive him. <laughs> uh, in fact, let's let's go ahead. Do you have anything else? No, I think that's about it. All right, let, let, let's talk about what we watched this week. I think we can do that. goes first. Hey, Brendan. What up? Uh, I watched nothing this week. I mean, I watched uh, The Right Stuff. I went to see that on Saturday. That was it. I saw that on the big screen, and then I've been in class for the rest of the week, so I've not had a lot of time to watch things other than, you know, like the TV shows I usually watch, which is Rachel Maddow at this point. (laughs) (laughs) Are you up to date on Mad Men? Uh, No. Oh, man. It's on fire. It's amazing. There's an episode from the third season that I still have to see, and I'm like four episodes behind on the fourth season, Uh, so I'm I'm probably about ten episodes behind. Well, well, fear not. Mad Men fifth season is somehow better than ever. Like, Mm -hmm. completely agree. I don't know any other show that's hit its stride in the fifth season other than, like, maybe The Simpsons, but... Particularly that last episode with Pete. All right, well, let's go. Yeah, sorry. Well, I I do want to... I I would like to talk about all the right stuff with you because I do love that movie. Mm-hmm. All the right stuff. Yeah, isn't it just the right stuff? Oh, that's right. All the right, all the right moves. <laughs> I'm thinking. You of. want to talk about Tom Cruise's penis? Yeah, I think I think maybe Leia Thompson's also making it in too. There's a lot of all the right moves, but just the right stuff. Yes. Um, yes. Is uh, is a movie I saw? I think on cable uh, last sometime last year, and it's is it on, is it on Blu-ray. No, oh. it isn't. Damn, that's no. dumb. Um, but no, I, I was I was sort of fascinated when I realized that you had that you just saw it for the first time because Brendan, you're kind of you know not a, not necessarily a NASA you know aficionado or expert, but mm-hmm. you are definitely like very into you know the moon landing and NASA, and you've been vocal on Facebook about you know sort of na- when NASA got shut down and stuff like that. Yeah, I mean, I, I think space exploration uh is important and i think in terms of you know achievements of 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 america uh the the space program was you know one of our uh biggest accomplishments i think as as a country and um i'm sure kubrick would say as a race Yes, yes. I mean, I wouldn't say I, I wouldn't say I'm an aficionado, but I'm definitely a bit of a NASA nerd uh, because you know, and I, I think it's just part of my family. My grandfather uh, was actually one of the first guys that worked for NASA way back when it was uh, NACA before it was even called NASA. So he was a structural engineer for them for uh, going on, I want to say, almost forty years. And you know, he met my grandma there and. 
you know, so there, there's there's space roots in in my family, uh, so it is kind of a emotional connection. But yeah, I mean, uh, I've been into definitely space movies for a while, um, and the right stuff was one that I wanted to see, but I'd waited until it was on the big screen uh, to see it. Just because there are certain movies where I rented it on DVD, and I was like. I put it in, I could tell, you know, it's just something where the scope is not going to be as impressive yeah, on especially, television. Yeah, especially early on in those yeah. sort of test pilot scenes. Uh-huh. I mean, but what was interesting to me about it is the way he does uh, the portrayal of space, because it was made in the early 80s where special effects were advanced, but they weren't the advancement of, say, an Apollo 13 or even a, a From the Earth to the Moon. So he almost does this weird kind of uh, tonal capture of trying what, what what it might look like to be in space, where it's almost like it reminded me a lot of like the opening and the end of, of Tree of Life with the the light and the patterns on the screen. Oh, um, hmm. So I thought that was an interesting approach to to space portraying space on screen. Yeah, um, I uh, yeah no, that was interesting. I. I remember actually uh, being in an English class, and we were given a segment from the book "The Right Stuff" um, by uh, Thomas Tom Wolf. Wolf. Tom Wolf, right? Um, and I remember because I grew up in Houston, and everyone <laughs> I knew either worked for NASA or knew someone who worked for NASA. And I feel like everyone on my block got to go see a shuttle. Was invited to go see a shuttle launch in Florida, except for <laughs> me. Mm-hmm. Um, but what's funny is I read it, and I read about all those test pilots and about. Uh, how crazy they were, and I was saying, and like when we were asked to give our thoughts about the piece or whatever, I said, "Well, it's very unrealistic because mm-hmm. astronauts aren't like that. Astronauts are all scientists and dorks and stuff, mm-hmm. and that's actually sort of the environment I grew up with. With NASA was just sort of viewing it as, well, it's just sort of a nerdy. Well, they they just they just like science for the sake of science, and mm-hmm. so." Like the first time seeing you know the right stuff, where it was just like these are the craziest motherfuckers who ever lived. Right. And, and it's, you know, it's, it's funny. Cause one of the things I always, you know, I'm not a huge Michael Bay fan, but one of the things I always did like about Armageddon is, well, at least exactly. all the, the characters are kind of vibrant and interesting, but then like you see the right stuff and you're like, Oh, like these are characters that are vibrant, and interesting. And also like are real people. Like, <laughs> Like, uh, even, you know, com- compared to, to the right stuff, like, the, the characters in Armageddon is very silly, and, mm-hmm. so, but it was, it's such a, you know, exciting movie, and it's fascinating how, I'm always fascinated by movies that are able to have that epic a scope without telling a single story, mm-hmm. um, that's, cause that's just, that seems like very counterintuitive to the way my brain works when I'm sort of forming stories in it, is, which is, I like more stripped down and streamlined. Yeah, streamlined to the point. And uh, I mean, it has been a while since I've seen the right stuff, so I, I don't have a lot of specific insight. But I, I really, was, I haven't seen it since I was a kid. So I, I, I it definitely needs a rewatch for me because I know I even liked it as a kid. Mm-hmm. And uh, I mean, for, for even watching a three-hour movie, but I think a lot of it had to do because I, I was kind of into astronomy, and I, I just, I had an enthusiasm for things that. You know, like, oh, my dad got me a telescope, so I'm going to get into this, you know, or whatever. Mm-hmm. And, you know, at the, t- at the time, like, I remember him and I watching Invaders from Mars, and it was so bad, but I still loved it. 
just because it had that element of uh, enthusiasm from the kid because he loved the idea of going into space and and seeing like an actual portrayal of an event that really happened was even more exciting for me and I thought the movie at the time was 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 more than just entertaining it was educational too mm-hmm. so that's why I really responded to it back then but I love to rewatch it and how was well, I mean, it how was it to see it? I'm sorry how was it to see it in the theater it was pretty impressive I mean I saw it at the Museum of Modern Art uh which does kind of I guess like uh the theater out in the New Beverly where they they do print as opposed to uh, like video projections and things like that. So the print wasn't entirely great, but it was on a big screen and the theater was generally very quiet. Um, so I, I really was impressed by it. But I will, I don't want to take up too much time, but I will tell you guys, uh, the all, my personal pick for the all-time best NASA and their people had balls story, which is obviously Big Rocket going up in the air, guys strapped to the top, this thing could blow up at any time. So what they had is they actually basically had like a zip line going from the top of the rocket pad all the way down to the control center, and if it looked like the rocket was going to blow up, they'd basically get out and they'd ride down the zip line until they were away from the rocket. (laughs) So you have to imagine the situation of here's this rocket, it's blowing up, and these guys are going to go down this zip line going very, very fast as, you know, the thing is blowing up behind them. But the, the best story comes from the pad leader, and the pad leader was kind of the scientist or the engineer in charge of making sure that everything went all right. And it was this guy named Gunter Wendt. Uh, and if you've ever seen, like, the old footage, he's an old guy, older guy with glasses wearing all white, and he's got one of those caps. So there was a rumor going around, and I'll actually read the story itself. This is from Craig Nelson's Rocket Men, which I actually have with me. So this is Gunter Wedd talking about how one day I got a call. Mr. Burke is here, and he would like to talk to you, and that's the president of the aircraft. So the guy comes in, and he says, there's something bothering us in St. Louis. And Gunter goes, what's that? He said, well, there's a rumor going around that somewhere in the white room, which is the room at the top of the pad, uh, you have stashed away a pipe or something, and you would be willing to kill somebody if they blocked the exit to get to this wire in an emergency. Is that true or false? So Gunter says... Walter, let me give you a background. When they are flight pressurized, if they spring a major leak in the hydrogen tank and find a hydrocarbon, we are in a hell of a big flame pit. I have thought many, many nights, long and hard, how I can save people. The elevator is no escape. We have a slide wire, but to the slide wire is only one inward opening door. It cannot be made an outward opening door. If somebody panics and blocks that door and he's bigger than I am, I will remove him by any means. And if you'd like to see the pipe I have stowed away, I'll show you the pipe. And so the the, the president of McDonald went back to St. Louis. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, wow. So it's like little decisions on that about on every level that are just, you know, in, kind of what I, I dig about the space program when I find – you know, inspiring little details and impressive. like that. Yeah, so. that's cool. Yeah, and I don't know, and it was definitely a movie that helped me appreciate that, especially because I was sort of exposed, you know, to the space program, you know, growing up, growing up in Houston in the twilight of the space program, where it, yeah, where to me it felt like, well, NASA hasn't done anything interesting in so long. It just seems mm-hmm. it was nice to it. Was, it was so like refreshing to see its you know roots and be like, oh, okay, like this is something that's great and yeah. Um, no, that's a great movie. Yeah, but... I, I'm I'm excited to watch that again soon. So I um I rewatched a movie that uh, just came out on Blu-ray 
and uh, I I, I kind of want to give a shout out to the, this uh, production company Synapse Films because they're they're putting out movies from the uh, like my teenage years where I would go to a local video store and I uh, you know would get the five for five deal where you get five movies for five bucks for five nights. And, you know, I had a friend who lived really close. He would just come over every night and we would watch a, a different horror movie. And oddly enough, the, 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 the mom and pop store owner of this little video store never really took the whole, you got to be a certain age and uh, things seriously. Although I remember, you know, him calling up my dad about, uh, you know, like dead alive, <laughs> calling up my dad and, and saying, uh, your son wants to rent Dead Alive, <laughs> and my dad was, eh, it's okay, uh, he can watch what he by, wants. By the way, there is a, there is a great, um, someone in some film site, I can't remember which at the moment, I apologize for that, um, posted something on YouTube, which was, it was a 2020 special, uh, like 2020 uh, segment from like 1983 or something called VCR Horrors, <laughs> and it was about this very thing, about like, do you know what your children are watching? And We're like it was it, no it, no Evil Dead Two was on there nice um, Slumber Party Massacre like all those things and they were just and it was it's so fucking funny I'll 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 put it on the uh, the blog because you have to I watch see it because they they call it they're like they they're they're called they're called gross amount flicks and they watch them at gross out parties like it's one of those things where. It's like teenagers are listening to folk music, but is this subversive? Like it's, <laughs> it's like so, it's just so out there and removed. Um, yeah, so I mean, I'm really grateful. So Syna- yeah, yeah, Synapse Films—they're they're putting out some interesting stuff. Um, because I am, as everybody knows, you know, Sam Raimi is one of my top favorite directors. So I basically tried to see anything he was involved in. But what had an, an interesting parallel to this particular movie called Intruder from 1989 is that I discovered it again through reading a Quentin Tarantino biography and at the end of the biography it listed his like top 50 favorite movies or whatever in no particular order um, other than Rio Bravo being his favorite Um, everything else was just sort of listed randomly and there was this movie there called Intruder and uh, I saw it was credited to one of his friends Lawrence Bender who co-wrote Pulp Fiction with him I believe it might have been the Bruce Willis story. Um, so it's interesting how Sam Raimi... I think he's his longtime producer, isn't he? Yeah, All yeah, right. totally. Yeah. Um, yeah, so they're really good friends, and he co-wrote this uh, crazy little slasher movie, and Sam Raimi's friend Scott Spiegel uh, co-wrote it and directed it as well. So it's just really interesting, the whole six degrees of separation in terms of my favorite filmmakers at the time. And the fact that I was just, I, I just, I kind of wanted to see a, a lot of different types of horror movies. But this one, to me, um, even when I was younger, stood out because I am a total nerd for interesting POV shots, uh, weird camera movements and camera angles, mostly because when I first saw Evil Dead 2, I was just like, how the fuck did he do that? How do you, you know, how, how do you put the cam, how do you make the camera move like that? Or, you know, just really interesting uh techniques that I wasn't used to seeing being done especially in horror movies and I was I found Intruder to be inventive mo- 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 <laughs> mainly for 
the cinematography. Like I know there's some quality kills. I think that you know the gore quotient is there. The meat hook. Yes, uh, that Sam Raimi. Sam gets Raimi his face, himself. His, he plays the butcher. Face, Sam the butcher. Yeah, he gets his face put on a meat hook. That's that's great. Yeah, and it, it's kind of weird though that they put like Bruce Campbell on the box even though he only appears at the very end as a cameo. <laughs> like, right. he doesn't play a big role, but of course they want to promote the name um, and get people to see it. But I just kind of wanted to bring up this fact um, because re-watching it on Blu-ray, it was really cool. And I, to this day, I still think is it's... Is that shot on film? Yeah. I some reason, my memory of it is that Intruder is shot on, like, video. Like, some of those no. early, like, mid-80s... I don't believe it is. No, no, no. I, okay. I, I'm fairly certain it was shot. With it, it might have just been a really shitty transfer that I saw before yeah. Synapse got their hands on it. Yeah. I, I mean, they're also putting out a movie I've never even seen uh, called Thou Shall Not Kill Except. So I'm really excited to watch that because, again, I think the same uh, people involved with Intruder uh, wrote and directed that one as well, and Sam Raimi plays a role. But I'm, I just... The, the thing that still stands out to me about this movie is simply just the camera work is really inventive. I mean, it, it's a slasher film that kind of doesn't just play on the conventions you expect. It sort of cranks them up to 11 in a way that's, you know, I'm probably overstating it, but, uh, you know, when you see the kind of early camera work of the Coen brothers, I, you know, because Sam Raimi was friends with them, they were just doing really cool things with a camera at that time. And just sort of like going all out and trying. Well, yeah, Joel Cohen was assistant editor on Evil Dead. Right. So I mean, they they sort of inspired each other. They they were sort of coming from the same school. Well, you yeah. got you guys know uh, the story about that, right? Where uh, it was the Cohen brothers, Sam Raimi, Francis McDormand, and Holly Hunter all living in the same house. Wow. In Los Angeles at one point. I did, oh my god. <laughs> I don't know where to begin. That's awesome. Ugh. Just the idea of that. I was like, oh my god, that's so great. That's so great to hear. Mm-hmm. That 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 just group of people all living together. Um but anyway, uh that's why I, I also that's why I also thought like a simple plan, you know, came out after Fargo. I thought there were some Well, yeah, cuz Raimi called the Coens and asked them how to shoot snow when he was directing. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's right. So anyway, I think, like I said, Intruder is not really like a spectacular slasher film in terms of like... There's like no characters. No, there are no characters and you know where it's going. I, you know, I didn't really give a plot synopsis, but it's just a slasher movie that takes place in a grocery store overnight. Yeah. That's all it really is. And you're trying to figure out who the killer is. Like and- the same way, like, you know, even before you know the story behind Clerks, you can kind of tell, oh, this <laughs> is a guy who had a, a access to a convenience store. Like, uh, who decided to make a movie that gets, was set in a convenience store because that's, you know, where he had access to. Like, Intruder feels like these are people who had access to a grocery store and they were just like, okay, what's every way we can use this grocery store? Yeah. And then let's, like, loosely base a film around let's that. Let's put the camera in the shopping cart and ram it into things. Exactly. And they just kind of, you know, went for broke. And, I, you know, I, I, I admire that sort of uh, enthusiasm. Because, you know, most people would just be like, oh, let's just kill some people and have some gore and that's it. But I, I feel like they, they, they step things up. And to me, I think it's always great when one element can stand out and elevate a film. And I, I was just curious. We don't have to, like, dive into a, a list of, of films, but are there particular films where, like, one particular thing about it 
really stands out for you and you're willing to sort of overlook, well, there's not a lot of characters or there's, there's, there are definite weaknesses, but its strength seems to, you know, overcome everything else. And I, for me, I think it's the, uh, it's the camera work and the cinematography, especially in, a in, in, in an intruder, which would, ex- and, and your general love for crazy camera and stuff would explain oh, yeah, why you, there's a bias, <laughs> why you give a, why would, well, that would explain why you give a pass to so many like bad Brian De Palma movies and stuff. Oh, well, yeah, that's probably a huge reason why I like, right. Um, but, uh, I was, I would actually say like intruder is actually an interesting example that you give because I'd say it has something for me. Um, as long as the horror movie is well p- paced and like, I really love gore scenes where, like, most horror movies, there are horror movies like, you know, Texas Chainsaw Massacre or Pol- Poltergeist or Exorcist, where they're trying to build a tone and they're trying to, you know, build an atmosphere and a mood. But there are movies where at no point is the audience looking at it as anything other than, like, mindless silliness. Mm-hmm. And what I appreciate about The Intruder is that all of the gore is shot. Where, like, when you see Raimi's face, his face is real, like, they don't cut away right before it hits the meat hook. They just show a really fake-looking, like, rubber face being impaled by the meat hook with blood coming out. I find that kind of charming. No, I love that. (laughs) I love that. Like, they're, like, um, you know, the movie Street Trash? I don't think I've seen Street Trash. You haven't seen Street Trash? I thought you was... What the fuck? 80s horror movie. It's great. Okay, Street Trash is about a bunch of bums, and uh, they find... Uh, all these homeless it's literally like the worst thing ever it's so offensive okay how did i miss this so these Hmm. homeless people um go to a liquor store and the liquor store owner finds a crate of like cheap wine that he didn't know was there and they all drink it and they all start to melt like that is and when they melt it's just like very obvious um you know like rubber you know plaster kind of um you know, faces and stuff that get imploded, and there's all like brightly colored goo spraying everywhere. Oh man! Oh, it's and and it's actually the camera. The camera work is actually you know and a Patrick, lot. Patrick, you're not going to believe this, but yes, who's putting out a digitally remastered Synapse. version? Yeah, 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 yeah. And no. Brian Singer worked on the movie as a grip. That's fucked. <laughs> no, no, Street Trash. Um, what are some other? There was actually that. a recent one I saw on Netflix. It's from like 2006. It's one of those. You know, like, sometimes on Instant, you'll just find horror movies that were clearly <laughs> never released in any kind of variety, like, other than Netflix Instant, because they're just all shot in low-grade video, and the sound is horrible, and they just, like, look like home movies, like, one notch above home movies mm. that you used to make, like, when you were in high school, you know? <laughs> like, there was a movie called A Hundred Tears about a killer clown, and the kills in it are very, like, there's... The film opens with him taking out an entire halfway house, which, again, is just such a great, like, there's all, like, you get, like, about, like, three minutes of all these junkies and heroin acts, like, you know, sort of talking about the struggles. There's some that are succumbing. They're like, oh, do you know someone who I can score from? And there are some who are trying to get their life right. But then a clown with an axe comes in, like a big plastic axe, and he just chops everyone. And all the effects are really horrible, and, the you know, the blood is a little, it has that thing where the blood isn't quite the right color and it's a little too watery. I don't know if well, you noticed this. With Sometimes it doesn't. I mean, CGI blood is what bothers me more. Well, no, no, I'm that. not saying it bothers me. I'm just saying, like, it's just a thing with, super, mm-hmm. with like, no-budget horror movies is that the blood is always super watery. And don't you hate clowns? Me? No, oh, I don't care I'm about I'm probably just getting you confused I'm with di- different friends. My girlfriend is terrified of clowns. Oh, okay. I'm indifferent on them. But 
It's it, but it like the kills are very silly looking, but it's a silly movie, so it works. Um, and I prefer silly looking, you know, you know, kills where they don't cut away yeah. right when it cuts into the guy, the fake head, you know, t- uh, to oh no, we want to maintain an atmosphere. No, you don't. Like, understand what movie you're making and do it. That's something that... I can't. Yeah, I just I want to recommend this movie basically because it's a really yeah. Like, there's point of view shots of a telephone where it's like panning out of the. Of the what you call it, it you get the <laughs> feeling that everyone directed the movie. Like yeah. it was a group of like because ev- everyone in it are not just actors. Like Sam Raimi isn't an actor; he's a director. Mm-hmm. He's friends with this other person who's a you know like there are other people who are working in other capacities in other films. Like there are producers who are actors in it and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, Sometimes I'm just an easy sell when you do do goofy things with a camera. Like right. I'm going to get a major boner when I rewatch Panic Room for sure. Yeah. Like, there's a camera going inside there, of a keyhole. Holy fuck! Is there an example like that that you can think of, Brendan? I mean, there's stuff that I'm a, I'm a sucker for. Yeah. Um, I mean, I guess, like, since we're talking about horror, I really like the opening credits to Halloween H20. Uh, oh, yeah. Where there's, like, the, the articles of, of kind of the time between Halloween films with uh, Donald Pleasance's narration from the various movies. Uh, I, I remember really liking that, despite the movie itself not being very good. But I mean, metatextual stuff uh, will generally get get a movie points, uh, good performances, or if there's like something that I'm really interested in and I I watch it uh, for the first time, and it, they they don't screw it up like in terms of their portrayal. I guess Titanic. For example, uh, I remember really, I was a Titanic nut when that movie came out. I remember being really impressed, even now, with, with that. Or Gangs of New York, similar thing, even though Gangs of New York is not a very good movie. I think there are, the production design and, and the portrayal of, of, you know, that time in New York is, is uh, pretty impressive. And then, you know, there are actors who, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll watch anything in or I'll tend to give a pass on, so... Yeah, sometimes the strength of a movie can just appeal to me to where, I don't know, sometimes I do become oblivious to the to the weaknesses, or at least I'm aware of them, but because the strength is something I love so much, I'm just like, mm-hmm. I, I'm, I'm willing to go with it. I'm willing to say, it's worth seeing just because of this one cool element that I think mm-hmm. is, is, is special. Oh, other things I like, were, I'm sorry, go ahead, Brennan. I mean... I keep coming back to, to Streets of Fire, which is I think it's an amazing movie. It is, but I know that there 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 are elements to the movie which I think are, you know, it's the, the uh, there are there are elements which are not objectively very good, but the the overall kind of tone and what it tries to do, uh, and the 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 frequency with which it succeeds, uh, is so earnest and endearing that I have to, uh, you know, give it points. So. Yeah, um, I was gonna say one other thing gets me is like a, and this is probably a big reason why I love Robert Altman so much uh, is I love sort of you love it when people talk over each other. Yeah, yeah, yeah I really like it. Like uh, yeah, no, I I love uh, sort of um, uh, anti-authoritarian, like sort of uh, countercultural. Like, like, for example, I think the ending of Strange Days where, like, everyone beats up the riot cops is, like, really silly and really dumb. But at the same time, it's a, it, it's a, it's images of a crowd beating up riot cops. And, like, my, my hatred of cops <laughs> and my love of 
the individual triumphing over government is so strong that I love that ending, even though I think in terms of how it's portrayed, it's super cheesy and silly. Yeah, remember when we had that argument when you just wanted to make uh, Cop Killer by Body Count the theme theme song for the show? Yes, Cop Killer is my favorite song. Right. Um, uh, (laughs) Justice for Trayvon. That's all I'm saying. Uh, no, no. So, so I guess now would be the wrong time to bring up Alien Nation, right? <laughs> oh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Nice. Because that, that's another one where there are elements to that movie which are not very good, but they so much of it, uh, the performances, Mandy Patinkin especially, they they sell it with such earnest with with uh, they sell it so effectively that you can be like, you know, uh, they pulled this off enough that I'm going to give them a pass on the stuff that they didn't. I actually, I, I, I'm, I'm moving um, soon. Actually, um, to the to the big to, city, to the moon. Yeah, no, to the, no, to the city. So I've been I've been selling a lot of my DVDs, uh, and I was in a I was in a disc replay, which is sort of like a disc resale uh, DVD and CD and video game resale uh, chain that and is Blu-rays now. Yeah, and Blu-rays of course that it's in Illinois. And uh, I saw the complete series of the Alien Nation TV show. Oh my god! And I was like, "Oh, that is a that That's is a fun. concept I am so on board for." And I almost, yeah, I, I, I almost took. <laughs> no, go, go ahead. ahead. Sorry, no, I, I was... didn't see the series. Are we going to do the Altman thing now? Yeah, yeah. No, <laughs> go ahead. No, no, really, go ahead. Uh, I didn't see the series, but the movie. The movie is is very enjoyable, and I think they've been talking about rebooting the series for for a while. And if oh. there was ever one that that could use it, that's one. Interesting. So. Yeah, no, I, I just, I'm, I love, I love the concept, and I like, I almost took all of the money I got from, you know, selling. I sold in Seminoid. I sold, you know, a season of Homicide: Life on the Street. I sold. Oh. Yeah, I know. Uh, well, it was season three. Season, by the way, everybody, Homicide: Life on the Street is great, but seasons one and two is all you really need. Mm. Uh, it comes in one set. Season three is where it becomes the, it becomes more of a typical cop show. Uh, first two seasons are great, but anyway. Speaking of aliens, you should talk about. David Lynch for a minute. I would no no no. I was actually I was see I was going to talk about Mulholland Drive for what we watched this week, um, but I'm I'm thinking that is too big a conversation. It is a very big conversation, and it's and it's uh, and I also want to rewatch it because and if you haven't seen it recently, like it's not the kind of movie where you it's easy to remember what happens because yeah. it's because while you're watching it, it's hard to keep track of what's going on. It certainly is. That Naomi Watts is really incredible in that movie, though. No, I she's just, great. Yeah, I, there's a lot I like about it, yeah. um, and there's a lot I just. But I, I would actually like to talk about King Kong. Um, Which version? Uh, the the original, the Marion C. Cooper version that I uh, I watched recently, and I love. I still love. Sure. Um, I like. I think there are a few movies that where technology, like film technology, as far as special effects and stuff, makes such a huge breakthrough. But also the movie that it that breakthrough debuts with has like fits it. And use utilize it perfectly. I'd, I'd say the the best example other than King Kong would be Toy Story, where like CGI was just good enough that you could depict you know shiny plastic toys, but you couldn't depict real like all the people in Toy Story look kind of weird and gnomish. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but like the toys look great because you don't have to deal with skin textures or actual hair or anything like that. Mm-hmm. So like and that was and the store and it was. And that, and I don't know, I don't, a lot of people probably don't remember, like, Toy Story, the original, is only about, like, 74 minutes long. Like, mm-hmm. really? Oh, wow. Yeah, because they couldn't really afford a movie to be that much longer, because at that point, the process of, you know, 
as silly as it sounds now, at that point, the process of a computer animated movie was so prohibitively expensive that they, you know, but that ended up working to the advantage because it's a very tight movie and it's very yeah. well utilized and the everything about that's perfect. And Did I they have like 20 minutes of credits after that. Yeah, no, no. no. Well, that's that's what Master of the Skies did with Dana Carvey. Like it was 60 minutes long, but it was like 20 minutes of outtakes and credits. Really? To stretch it out to 80 minutes. It wasn't that long. That wasn't it was a 20, was it? Maybe maybe I'm exaggerating, but <laughs> that'd be great. <laughs> Oh man, I hope Lars von Trier does that sometime where he makes a movie that's With 30 Dana minutes. Carvey. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I hope Lars von Trier and Dana Carvey uh, and uh, Kevin Nealon, all, everyone from that cast of SNL. They all get raped. Yeah. Well, it is, it is Lars von Trier. It's not going to be, not going to end happily. No, but King Kong is like perfectly utilized where. Um, I have actually not seen Peter Jackson's version, so I'm. I, so if I speak out of turn, I apologize. But I liked it. I mean, I kind of yeah. like it too. Yeah. I really do. I. I mean, I it, like, it's flawed, but I like a, it. Six or seven years after it came out, so I was not. Yeah. To me, the difference, like I, it's just, it's not really a movie for me because to me, the difference between the best CGI and the worst CGI is not that big. Like to me, as long as like I know it's not real. And it's clearly not real. Then it's just equally distracting. Um, so I wasn't excited to see Peter Jackson's. I still haven't. I probably will. I'm sure we'll do Peter Jackson sometime next year. Yeah, we should definitely. Um, but King Kong, like, it keeps building and building, sort of suspense, and you don't know what's what's going on. And there's no special effects at all. In fact, the movie is very contained, where even the sets, like for the boat. Uh, and the cabin, you know, in the main cabin and everything where they're planning the mission and all that, like the sets. And even when they first land on the, you know, the beach and they're seeing the, the sort of the sacrifice, sacrificial ritual. Um, and you know, with the, with the incredibly racist savages, <laughs> oh, yeah. um, like it's all very small and contained and there's not a lot of special effects, but you have that giant door and like, if you see a closed door, that is that big you're like what the fuck is behind it and it's mm-hmm. that's so effective and uh i mean it was used in pulse as well where and this, by the way jim before you leave God, tonight i'll, I'll, I'll let you yeah. i'll let you pulse because okay. it's it's great where people are taping off doors and before you know what's going on you just see a lot of taped off doors not the veronica mars sam levine version no 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 um so you see yeah so like it just and at that time like i know I don't think the, the special effects in King Kong were real enough that um, that anyone thought it was real. Like, I, I'm sure maybe, sure. Chil- you know, children did, obviously. But, like, no, like, you know, right-thinking adult thought, oh, they that's a real monster, and they, like, fled the theater. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, like, nowadays, anything that, spectacular that happens, we go, oh, it's CG. Uh, it's CGI. Yeah. Like, we just throw the CGI, like, even if it isn't CGI, they're, like, for, you know, what we're going to be talking about Heat later, like, there's a scene in that where I was like, oh, it's green screen, and apparently it isn't, <laughs> but it looked green screen to me, and I'm just so used to it, green screen being used, that I, I figured, of course it's green screen. Yeah, I know we'll be talking about David Fincher, and I, there was one thing where everybody was talking about when Social Network came out was digital breath. Like yeah, outside, no, that, they, that was, they that. did. They did really bad digital breath. Yeah, that, that was distracting. That's, like that, that kind of stuff really bugs me. But uh, why is that necessary? That. Oh no, that was that was really distracting. The first, 
it almost looked like I don't know if you saw Extract, but in Extract, there's a part where Jason Bateman takes a hit from this giant bong, <laughs> and then like so throughout throughout the scene, he is still exhaling smoke like for a full like twenty <laughs> seconds, and it's like very clearly digital smoke because no actor can exhale smoke for twenty seconds. But like that's what it looked like to me when people were breathing outside. But it, in such a but anyway, like like back then, like they didn't know what how stop motion worked. They didn't know what the fuck was going on. Yeah. They knew and just the idea of I don't know how you did it is you don't you know, even if you know something is fake, it's still enough to dazzle you. And I think the payoff is so great. And I forgot how fucking brutal the excavation into Skull Island when they're saving uh, Fay Ray. Uh, like, just people are constantly getting picked off one by one. Like, there's not a moment's rest mm-hmm. to the point where you're not even sure. Like, forget them saving her. You're like, how the hell are they even going to get back to their ship? Like, they're so deep in the swamp where all these monsters are eating everybody and stuff. And they're Tyrannosaurus Rexes. It's great. And then. You know, I think I think action, and I always think, um, you know, I always think uh, uh, sort of action scenes and destruction and stuff like that. And well, again, we're going to talk about more of this with Heat. I think that's always more exciting when it's in a recognizable location. Um, like, like for example, you know, all of the battles in Lord of the Rings that take place in big fields and everything—they're just big fields. Like they don't—they don't have any resonance where. Um, you know, and and all this stuff in the jungle, while exciting, because people are constantly getting picked off, and mm-hmm. like you're constantly seeing new shit all the time. Do you think like, people in New Zealand, or, or was that where a Lord of the Rings was filmed? Yeah. Like, oh, I could, I could I see my field. <laughs> you know? That's the field. That's the field where we hung yeah. out all the time. But but when King Kong hits New York, and suddenly yeah. like he's wrecking havoc there, it's such a great payoff. When you already thought the big King Kong payoff had already happened. Mm-hmm. And it's a tight movie. It's, you know, I think it's only like 80, 90 minutes or something like that. Yeah. Um, you know, as opposed to the three hours of Peter Jackson. Which again, I think I they had seen. a lot Maybe. of deleted stuff, like that spider pit sequence, which Peter Jackson decided to throw into his version and oh, stuff. Right, because it's sort of a famous. It, it's sort of. it's the, I, think the, I think the spider pit is second only to the drowning girl in Frankenstein as far as infamous scenes yeah. that were cut out yeah, that makes sense. for being too graphic early on. But no, it's no, awesome. It's, King it's Kong still is, a great movie. King Kong is great, and it, and it holds up. And even the fact that it's kind of meta because one of the main characters is making a film about an adventure to an island in which they capture a beast. Like, the film you're watching isn't far from the exact film that is described by... Uh, I can't remember the guy's name the character's name but you know the director character um like it's and carl yeah yeah, carl something so so even in that way like it almost reads like even the racism and sexism like everyone's just like oh women just get in the way and 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 even here like it's like it's very racist and sexist movie but it almost even works on that level just because you're imagining, oh, the directors of this are like the director in the film, which is, you know, he's yeah. sort of a rough adventurer guy who's... And again, like, just how we were talking about, you know, certain things being very endearing, just just the organic stop-motion animation, him on top yeah. of the Empire State Building with the airplane, I I don't know, that still will always make me giddy when I see it. I, and, I love and, it. And, and actually, like, one of the things that worked to their advantage is, is he has long, you know, King Kong has long fur, um, so the fact that you know, you can tell that he's been fiddled with 
in between every frame because his fur keeps moving and so like the model is consistent it almost like you can read the fingerprints and stuff as oh that's his fur rustling in the wind like, <laughs> like like there's a lot of things where things that could be disadvantages they work to their advantage I love King Kong and I'm, yeah. I wasn't sure if I would, I'd still love it as much uh, looking at it with a critical eye and you know obviously be, this being 2012 I'm not going to be impressed with the special effects they're not gonna, really going to wow me you know but no, I still love that movie. As well, you should. I've never seen the the one with Jeff Bridges that came out in the seventies. No, neither have I. Yeah, I heard it was bad. Yeah. Um, I think that's about it for what I we watched. I think it this is week. indeed. Yeah. Uh, oh, and by the way, we did see Cabin in the Woods. Yeah, but we're not going to talk about it no. because people are being pissy about spoilers. Even though it's not a movie, you can spoil. The premise is set up in yes. the first ten minutes, and it does not deviate from that premise. And there is no twist. So we could talk about Cabin in the Woods all we wanted, and we would not ruin it for you. But because everyone else on the internet seems to disagree, we're going <laughs> to go ahead and hold off. It's really good. I had fun. Yeah. Brendan, did you catch up with that one yet? or Not yet. Okay. I'm pretty behind. You like meta stuff. You'll like it. Yeah, I think I so. I do, yeah. I mean, and I was like, I, I didn't know when I was going to see it, and I'm a big... I'm Unlike my fiancé, I'm less kind of picky about, about spoilers, so I kind of follow things... Uh, it's terrible and I shouldn't do it, but I kind of follow things as they're going on. So I, I read a little bit about kind of what the, the big twist is and, and, and what the movie is about. Um, so, but I mean, it definitely sounds interesting and I, I love Joss Whedon and I'm excited to see it. So, well, I'm interested to just get your perspective, you know, because you're going in knowing what yeah. the, the, the big reveal is, mm-hmm. so to speak. And, and I mean, so with, I mean with, 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 uh, that's kind of like how I enjoy horror, uh, is I kind of like to know what I'm in for before I go in, so that way I can prepare myself for it. Like, uh, I think I wouldn't have enjoyed Antichrist nearly as much if I hadn't known what was what was coming. So. Huh. I think, I think I'm the opposite. Honestly. Yeah, I think we're kind of having like a debate on Facebook about that, and... Uh, I kind of go either way. Like I'm, I'm okay if I'm spoiled, or you know, mm-hmm. if I, if, especially obviously, if I read a book ahead of time, I'm kind of gonna have preconceived mm-hmm. expectations when I see a, a you know a movie adaptation. But um, I mean, I'm I'm not saying I wasn't trying to say that like oh you know it doesn't matter, and it's you know you're gonna have the same experience if you mm-hmm. know something versus if you don't. I think it's better not to know. Right. I mean, I do think it's better not to know. I mean, I but. When you've had wire spoilers, when you've had Omar's death spoiled for you, like, as you're getting ready to watch the episode, that pretty much kind of is like, well, you know. I think I think there's also a big divide maybe between people who grew up with the internet, like, who, when I say grew up, I mean they grew, like, they're as a film fan, as a, as a cinephile, mm-hmm. they grew up with the internet and people who didn't. Because, like, there's tons of Hitchcock films that just by reputation I know so much about them and the twists and stuff like that that before mm-hmm. I ever saw them and that's you know that's true for a lot of movies just because you know you get familiar with what they're known for and what the discussion is and what the debates are that right. you have a very good working idea of a lot of classic films before you actually see mm-hmm. them and I think maybe people who you know if they if they were born earlier um and they became a film fan and they were sort of discovering stuff very much on their own and they didn't have these kinds of message boards and stuff, and you know, mm-hmm. and Facebook, like they're just not used to that. Right. You know, True. I mean, Hitchcock well, maybe it would be the same because there's so many books and stuff. But right. I feel, I, mean, I feel there are very few like 
quote unquote classic movies that I don't have that even if I haven't seen, I don't have a grip on what they basically are. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's. I think ultimately it comes down to to execution, um, and I guess it's also maybe how I like to watch movies. Uh, I had a, actually had a conversation with someone in my classes today. Is when I working at a work of art, I can both simultaneously be appreciating it for the work of art it is, and then also, um, you know, kind of deconstructing or like looking at a sentence and be like, "Wow, that's a really well constructed sentence," uh, and I see what the author did there. Um, so it's. Just, I guess it's just kind of how I view. Uh, certain types of art whereas theater is one that because I'm not too familiar with how everything is put together I can go in and have a much much purer hmm. purer emotional experience than something that I'm you know interested in looking at how it works from a technical standpoint in addition to enjoying it uh, from an emotional one so that's a good point definitely I, I I think it's interesting just even bringing up how aware we are now of, of things thanks to the internet but um, you know, when, even even in 1999, when the Sixth Sense came out and the internet was sort of new um, and fresh at the time, but I, I feel like I wonder, you know, if that movie had come out now, people's sort of uh, oh, don't 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 tell anybody, don't tell anybody, you know, that sort of paranoia about it wasn't mm-hmm. sort of there when the Sixth Sense came. Obviously, I wasn't about to walking out of the movie. I wasn't about to tell everybody, oh my god, you know, mm-hmm. the ending of it. Because you kind of wanted people to figure that out on their own. As I, I do it. appreciate that in 2012 on a podcast about, you know, pretty much f- for not casual fans of film, you did censor yourself for, from revealing the end of Six Sense. True. Yeah. I wonder if there are anyone listening who don't know what Rosebud is. Everybody was dead. Yeah, you know, exactly. Um no, it's 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 an interesting conversation. I probably it is. I would actually like to have the spoiler conversation in more detail, maybe on a future episode or whatever, because it is something that I find is often very silly, uh, and you know people get worked up about very little. Um, yeah, I would agree with that. It's it was interesting just the response after Cabin in the Woods came out, and it sparked a whole other discussion that wasn't even just mm-hmm. necessarily about the movie, but our. Um, processing of information or how we uh, approach pop culture now, it's really interesting to me. And I think that's the best conversation. I mean, the, the fact that the Cabin in the Fever, a horror movie that, you know, I, I had, you know, good expectations for because I'm a Josh Whedon fan. Um, it, it turned out to be, you know, a fun movie, but I, and I enjoyed just the after, you know, effect the, the of of how people are responding either to the movie or just to the genre now, mm-hmm. you know, I like that everybody's having a uh, an intellectual discussion about horror films now, and I, I, you know, I don't. Again, I don't want to make this a long conversation about Cabin in the Woods, but I, I still feel like that. I, I'm not saying people are reading too much into it, and I, I think there's there's a lot of things in the movie that are worth bringing up. Maybe when we do a, a spoiler discussion about it, but we can move on. Because yeah. we have a great director to talk yeah, about. Yeah, Michael I wasn't Mann. Even gonna, we do. I, yeah, I'm excited. So let's talk about our director, eh? Yeah, Michael, Michael Mann. Mann. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> what was that at the end? Hunter, the insider. I am the vice in public enemy. Collateral, last of the Mohicans. Ali, Thief, the Keith, and of course, Keith. Started out Squat somewhere in Miami Can really shoot an action sequence With his 
Park neighborhood of Chicago, Illinois, where he immersed himself in the emerging Chicago blues scene of the time. He graduated from the University of Madison, Wisconsin with a BA in English, but after watching Stanley Kubrick's Dr. Strangelove, he became obsessed with film and went to get a graduate degree in film at the London Film School. His early work included television programs like Crime Story and Miami Vice, but it was films like Thief and Manhunter that first put him on the Hollywood map. But in 1995, it was the film Heat, a remake of his 1989 TV movie L.A. Takedown that was turning everybody's heads. Now, at the time this was released... Consider my head turned. Yeah, it turned everybody's heads. People were they were turning their backs on the movie screen, <laughs> and Michael Mann said, Wait, I have an epic. And they go, All right, you have our attention. Their performances have created a legacy of landmark films. I want full surveillance. That's 24 hours, round the clock. We never close open seven days a week. Now, for the first time, America's two most electrifying actors collide. Al Pacino and Robert De Niro, head to head. You know, where the the implication is not only that their characters are, uh, you know, in competition, but that somehow this film was a competition, like an acting competition between the two, Mm -hmm. which I get why. I mean, it is the first film where they have a scene together. They were together in Godfather Part Two, but they're in different timeline. They're, you know, the chronology was all mixed up, so they didn't, you know. Have any scenes together, but and then when that movie Righteous Kill came out and they were together for the whole movie, it was like whatever. <laughs> yeah, no, no one cares because it's a horrible movie. Yeah, but and I, like I get why you would market it the film like that, but it's very kind of a crass approach, um, and it's completely opposite of uh, uh, of what the film actually is. Which you know, one of the things I sort of only you know truly realized this time around was that it isn't just about those two characters. I used to view everything in this movie through the lens of those two characters, but it really is about the sprawling L.A. Mm-hmm. crime scene and all of the levels, whether it's you know some you know uh, shady lawyer who is working some illegal stuff, or it's uh, you know Dennis Haysbert who's 
trying who's a former thief who's trying to get his life back together or it's a fucking you know madman serial killer uh it's basically like the magnolia of crime it is the magnolia of crime dramas but what makes it incredible is that never at any point when you're watching it do you think oh he's trying to do nashville like you it doesn't feel disparate Mm -hmm. ever um the editing of the film is is very interesting the way um, it tells the story. It will edit from one emotional beat to the next emotional beat where it will have Val Kilmer, uh, you know, arguing with his wife, Ashley Judd, and then it will immediately edit to Al Pacino out late, you know, working, avoiding his own wife. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's sort of – it finds like sort of an emotional con- through line through all the characters and that's how it tells the story. Um, He's really interested in the character's personal lives. Yeah, but but that's sort of, but I, want, I do want to go back to the idea of – because if I understand correctly – uh, right, that was sort of what you were expecting the first when you first saw this, Jim. Was yes. you were expecting uh, Al Pacino, Robert De Niro face off because you didn't like this movie when you first saw when it, it first back came in nineteen ninety five. When it first came out, I don't know if my again my expectations were pretty high for it, and you know I I, I remember I mean I wasn't obviously you know I had seen Pulp Fiction I was a huge fan of movies at that point, but Michael Mann wasn't somebody. That was on your radar. No, he wasn't. He wasn't a filmmaker that was like, oh, God, I can't wait to see the next Michael Mann movie. Uh, At the same time, I realized he was very well respected. A lot of my, uh, you know, a filmmaker like Quentin Tarantino would certainly cite him as an influence or, um, you know, Jonathan Demme. Like, just there were a lot of filmmakers at the time who were saying Michael Mann, you know, he's, he's an amazing filmmaker and it's got a lot of great reviews when it came out. Um, And I was just surprised and it could have just been because of the hype and just because of what I had heard about it, that I wasn't really involved with it as much. I thought it was too long, and there were too many detours involving these side characters that didn't seem as interesting, or didn't seem like they had a big role in the movie. And that's kind of it's like the opposite. I had a complete opposite reaction this time, and maybe it's because I'm more attuned to like approaching things. You know, even though I've only seen one season of The Wire, I feel like I am I'm willing to go, uh, you know, on these detours with these other characters because I I can sense that they're not just there just to fill space or you know, just to be indulgent or just to have other side characters just to have more characters. I think there is a point to any small scene, any little interaction we have with a uh, side character. And, you know, it could be somebody like uh, Ted Levine or, or Ted Noonan here, you know, who just uh, – or Tom Noonan, I should say, who just show up, uh, you know, for a scene or two. This movie is fucking amazing, and I am so glad I rewatched it now with um, sort of, you know, with, with, with a different perspective on it because I think it is it is epic, and it definitely is one of the greatest action films ever made. And I, I certainly – when I first saw it, I was – Obviously riveted by the, uh, the, uh, the 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 chase sequence that everybody you know the bank robbery and then the chase sequence that everybody talks about after watching this movie. But um, now, I mean, obviously, when you see the opening scene, you could see where Christopher Nolan got his influence for Dark Knight. Oh, totally. Yeah, yeah. That was one of the honest mm-hmm. thinking as well. Like the very plain way it unfolds, where you understand yeah. the plan by seeing the plan happen, and right. Yeah, yeah, for sure, and the masks and every and the sort of casual way the you know exposition is being given. And holy shit! Again, still that that coffee shop scene, the dialogue is 
impeccable. Where it, you mean between? Yeah, Chino between the and... two of them, because I think to me, you know, it's not only it's a, it's a great example of foreshadowing. It's also you just get to know these characters and find out they're they're very much alike, and you know that they sort of recognize that within themselves, and they recognize that you know we both have you know a, a similar. Uh, moral stand, ethical stance on how we approach life in a way. I mean, obviously they do it in completely different ways, and they approach, you know, the, uh, how they, um, you know, do things in terms of their job or their profession or how they, you know, make money or whatever you want to call it. They they have different, uh, you know, approaches to that, but they still have kind of the same, they, you know, emotional state uh, of uh, you know, oh, I'm dealing with this problem and I'm dealing with that problem. But when it comes down to it, you know, uh, it's 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 you, you know, it's it's you or me in that sort of uh, confrontational situation. I I do want to back up a bit because I remember Brendan sort of uh, when we were talking about this, ep- you know, preparing for this episode, or anything, mentioning that Heat is sort of the ultimate LA movie, mm-hmm. and I would like to hear sort of Brendan's thoughts on that because that's some that was an interesting thing that hadn't occurred to me. Mm-hmm. Well, I was watching it again and. I don't think it's so much the ultimate L.A. movie so much as it is uh, the ultimate modern crime movie. And to do, understand why that is, you kind of have to go back a little bit. I have to go back maybe 40 years before this movie came out and look at Raymond Chandler, uh, oh. who was one of the first guys to, to write about L.A. in a lot of ways that, you know, man and then going forward did. But what... The, what a lot of the those guy the pulp novelists of the 40s and 50s like Chan or Ham and so forth and so on did is that they took the detective novel and the detective character into a place where the crime who committed the crime was less important than the effect the crime had on its characters and that was kind of the the, the basis of what would become both noir fiction and pulp fiction. Uh, or pulp crime fiction, and also kind of what uh, uh, separates the crime novel from the detective novel or the detective story. And you know, there are movies that 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 do what uh, Heat does in terms of looking at how crime or a crime affects various levels or affects people from an individual on downward. But I don't think that. Uh, it does it with the there are movie, there are any movies that do it with the scope mm-hmm. and the nuance that uh, man is able to do in in heat um, and it's just it, it it really is Altman-esque or uh, the, in a way that I hadn't considered until you brought that up um, because you really kind of see you know what what various crimes or what the active criminals are like in Los Angeles. And there's that very powerful scene where Al Pacino has to stop, uh, or Al Pacino's character has to stop a grieving mother who realizes that her daughter has been murdered by the serial killer. And, you know, that's something where because the movie is longer and epic and it takes its time, um, you know, you get the effect of, you, you feel the effects of crime yeah. in a way that I don't think you do in a lot of action movies. Yeah, that you get was, really emotional. And that, that, that's a scene actually where the first time 
uh, and actually in my recollection when I was sort of, you know, misremembering how the movie worked and not remembering all the different parts, uh, that was a, that was actually one of the parts I was like, well, this could easily be cut out was where the the guy who sort of fucked up the initial heist, uh, mm-hmm. who's, you know, clearly some kind of maniacs like, oh, he's a serial killer. And I was and I was sort of, you know, rolling my eyes at, OK, we had to go there. But, uh, you know, the effects it had on, you know, where it led, you know, Al Pacino's character and the effects on, you know, where, you know, even just the very, very brief scene with William uh, Finkter and him where you kind of get an eye because early on in William Finkter seems like you don't know if he's some kind of ultimate crime boss or what because he's so confident and he's so he's doing a million of like he's working on other deals and he just picks up a phone and he's like oh hey Robert De Niro meet meet this person at this drive-in you know like he is he's doing these things so confidently and you know because that's sort of the image he has to project and then you realize, like, oh, he has no idea what he's doing, where he's just picking a random person off the street who is a maniac. Uh, you know, like, where that character led to was so much more interesting uh, than I remembered, and, you know, than, and where I thought it would go the first time I saw the film. Uh, as far as uh, the maniac is also, also, you know, the guy who's clearly kind of loose, you know, got loose screws loose and all that, he's also a serial killer. Um, and that's, you know... Uh, I I think one of the greatest things about Heat um, is the fact that it is over two and a half hours long. It's a very long movie. It's a very wide scope. But it keeps our attention the whole way because, you know, like I mentioned before, like the editing, it goes from, you know, it goes from Robert De Niro being alone to Robert De Niro interacting with his, you know, crew, being being very stiff, to, you know, Al Pacino in his family, but Al Pacino leaving his family and being alone and how Al Pacino reacts to it, to the fact, you know, and one of my favorite details in this film is, uh, when they're talking about like what witnesses saw, um, one of the witnesses actually says, Oh, the guard, the guard mouthed off and called one of the robbers slick, you know, they like, <laughs> like it's such a throwaway detail, but it's so true. Like, uh, just, you know, there can be a hundred witnesses to, to a crime and they're all going to witness something different, you know? And the way facts can be distorted. So we're introduced, you know, we haven't, there's that dramatic irony where we know something Al Pacino doesn't, but, and through doing that, we understand mm-hmm. something about how hard his fucking job is, you know, which is important because that whole scene is Al Pacino arriving and immediately knowing, okay, that the time lock, like Al Pacino does a lot of snapping in this movie and he's very, you know, everything he says, is very pointed and let go. They were professionals. She had a great yeah. ass. Yeah, no, no. So, like, he's very, you know, you see him being very good at his job, but just that little throwaway detail of a witness getting something completely wrong that could mm-hmm. possibly have led him down a different path, you know, or something like that. Like, you don't, you understand what he's up against. It doesn't seem like it's too easy, but it's weird how. Me- again, I brought this up before, but memory is weird. Where I just literally think that this whole movie is Al Pacino screaming. Every line, like it's over the top. That's Pacino. the way you remember the film. It, it, the I'm first confu- time you saw it, I'm to... confusing like Devil's Advocate Al Pacino with this, with this to movie. To be fair, I, I would say one of, I would say one of my problems with the film is that Al Pacino is ham is in ham mode, and at times it it, it is sem- semi justified by the fact that 
you know, every time he isn't doing the job and isn't inter- interrogating people and isn't putting clues together, like he's just dead inside and he's, <laughs> you know, he's just completely morose and without energy and it's like, oh, he's getting a high from the job, but it isn't quite enough to justify how where he goes and how silly and sort of playing off of that, my 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 impression when I first saw this movie is Al Pacino is over the top, Robert De Niro is bored, and Val Kilmer was wasted. And now, like, what? Like, just that, I mean, you know, how memory changes over time, yeah, but it's yeah. also just, it's interesting, you know, because my favorite Quentin Tarantino movie is Jackie Brown. That's a two and a half hour kind of a epic Los Angeles story with... You know, like detours and, you know, spe- specifications of, like, mm-hmm. each character has their own song Which, that they I mean, listen it, to. it is literally based off an Elmore Leonard. Yeah. Uh, and, and I love that. I, I think attention to detail novel. works. And it is actually exactly what Brendan was talking about. Like, that film is very much, uh, you know, not it's not a noir in style, but it is the kind of story with the twists and turns and the... Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And where the effects it had, where it's focusing more on the characters than it is on yeah. the actual. I remember when my dad uh, walked out of Jackie Brown, his, he was expecting like a House of Games kind of an ending to it. Like thinking, oh, it's going to, there's going to be some big reveal. No. Yeah. I mean, uh, that's not how Elmer, Elmore Leonard writes. It's right. more about the characters and the interactions. Um, but uh, the other thing that makes Heat so well paced is there are sort of three scenes in it that I think are among like the three greatest scenes of all time. Hmm. Um, I think that initial heist is so fucking well edited. Yes. Mm-hmm. There are, there's such very subtle things that are done um, to make the spectacle of, and again, this isn't transformers. This isn't a movie where there are big explosions, but like the impact of the 18 wheeler hitting the armored car is so great. Um, and the way he, you know, he shoots it where he has a long shot where you see the 18-wheeler building up momentum. Mm-hmm. And you don't, see, you know, you see the, the, you see a long, you know, you see a long shot of, uh, of, the, of the armored car flipping over. But then you see it, you know, you see how, what kind of momentum and what, you know, what kind of effect it's having by the way it pushes into the car, the, you know, the used car lot yeah. or whatever. And. Yeah, you uh, feel that shit. <laughs> One of the things man does really, you know, and it, it's something that I only sort of realized later. I wish I could have gone back and watched it all. He has sort of an interesting thing where he will play things out with a lot longer shots and a lot, mm-hmm. you know, a lot more distance um, in between, you know, action actors and stuff mm-hmm. than a lot of action films will ever allow. Um, these yeah. sort of, yeah. you know... Even Pretty just the much. shot of like the, he holds on the on the policeman the the one policeman who's you know uh, right well but, but that, that's just like the the choice to do that you know it obviously is kind of like foreshadowing well something is going to go wrong but you feel the tension as a result of his choice well you know and when I say long I don't I don't even necessarily mean that the it goes a long time without an edit I mean sure. the camera is shot from one side of the used car lot where yeah. you see. In a very wide shot, you see everything happening very clearly um, in an almost understated way. Um, I think the only time you get action scenes with that sort of distance happening where the camera isn't super kinetic and where there's not a ton of edits is something like a war movie. Mm-hmm. Um, which mm. brings me, of course, to the the shootout, which 
to me is shot like it's not shot like an action sequence. It's not shot like a bank robbery. I mean, the bank robbery part is, but like it's shot like a war movie. And it's to my recollection, it's really I mean, other than you can, you know, look at B, you know, B movies like Invasion USA or stuff like that. Like, which is awesome. There aren't (laughs) many there aren't any modern, you know, movies that have had the balls to depict like a war zone on American soil. You know, mm, as we uh-huh. understand war, but like to me, that shootout, you know, in the wide street where people are running and screaming, and the echoes yes. of it's, the gunshots are so wide, visceral. and you, it's... and not only that, you get a scope of like a full like three blocks of a street. It's yeah, the way the the scene is played out is so wide and uh-huh. so vast, and the distances were in. And just, you know, the way Val Kilmer is shooting where he's, you know... And you don't know who's going to make very it. very precise movements and the way... There's that one great long shot where he, you know, you see him shoot one direction, you see him shoot the opposite direction, then you see him duck under the car, you see him reload the gun, and you see him shoot again. And, yeah. and you see muzzle flashes in the distance during it. Like, so often, gun the way gunshots are done is it cuts, you know, it's close to the gun... You see, you see muzzle shots, and then it cuts to where the gun is, you know, where the squibs are going off. It is so beautifully orchestrated. It's like a symphony of bullets. And just mm-hmm. like, you know, Michael Mann is conducting it all. And it feels, uh, you know, like, I don't know, in, in almost like how, you know, what, what Paul Greengrass has done only without the shaky cam. It just feels very immediate in the moment, like you're there, and there's no sort of manipulative tactics. There's no soundtrack. Right. That's, that's something I've noticed a lot in his in his work and you know just the choice to have any confrontation scene whether it be the the ending or the, the shootout or like uh you know the ending of thief just the choice to we're not going to have anything here but silence is pretty audacious in my opinion and I, it's not something i i really um you know stuck with me uh when I first saw this movie, it's not. I'm surprised it didn't because it stands out in terms of other action films. So many good things to say, <laughs> Brendan. Ugh. No, I think I think the uh, the war analogy is interesting. It comes back to kind of this idea that the film really takes the time to explore what you know what it's like to you know, live in a city where, you know, that stuff and stuff like that did happen and does happen. Sure. I mean, um, you know, shootouts like that are not uncommon uh, in Los Angeles. I mean, even even today, there's usually like one one or two a year where uh, you will you will read about that. Um, yeah, I mean, it's just uh, there's a lot to, to go through with, with the movie. Uh, and it's like, I, I think... You make an interesting point um, when it comes to to Pacino's performance, and that he's very big and he's overblown uh, when he's solving the case or when he's on the job. But when he's not, he's just dead inside. And I think uh, the the quote that his wife says to him in the film when she you know describes you know you don't live with me, you live among the remains of dead people. You sip through the detritus, you read the terrain, you search for signs of passing for the scent of your prey, and then you hunt them down. That's the only thing you're committed to. And I think one of the reasons that makes Heat so great and so resonant, at least for me, is that, you know, you look at any detective character, you look at any crime 
character, uh, you know, of the last 50 years. And that's a, a pretty pointed description. It's the detective mm-hmm. has always existed on the outskirts of society. Uh, and I'm just going from notes here, you know, because Edgar Allan Poe described his d- detective, Dupin, as a madman of a harmless nature. Uh, and that's, that's one way uh, to describe it. But I think, again, the movie's really about consequences and it's not in a big kind of pretentious way uh and there are two scenes that stand out the first is when michael t williamson is very calmly explaining to ashley judd what will happen if she doesn't turn her husband in um what will happen to her not just her life but her son's life um and that's a scene where if the movie had been a bit shorter you probably would have lost that yeah uh, but it makes her choice uh, ultimately one of the things that, that that sticks out to me in the movie. It's that that whole scene that plays out without, you know, I think there's a, a score on the background, but there's not any dialogue between Kilmer and, and Judd. Uh, just knocks me flat every time I see it, both her performance and his. And then again, you come to the end, and Oof. both men are faced with a choice where they know that pursuing the you know kind of doing what they're committed to following their code will destroy their life i mean i think de niro knows that when he's he's you know he's gotten away he's got his woman you know he's got his money he can he can retire and he he can win uh and although i think it's debatable that the movie is really about you know it comes back to the insider where one of the best lines at the end of that movie is you know yeah what did i win you know, victory is is so fluid in man's stuff. Um, but because of De Niro's personal code, he can't let this thing go, and so he turns around. Yeah. And then you also have Hannah sitting in the hospital with his, you know, his stepdaughter, who just tried to commit suicide, and he gets the page, and he knows that he shouldn't go. But he has to, you know. It's the only thing that he knows. It's the only thing that any of them are that either that either of them are, are good at, and they, as they say in the coffee shop scene, you know, they kind of don't want to be good at anything else. Right. Um, so I think there's a lot to to respond to and a lot to process when it comes to the thematic uh, and and kind of what its place is in in the not just the action movie genre but kind of the crime fiction genre. Uh, crime film genre as a, as a whole. I mean, I think that what man does here for the genre is unmatched, certainly on film, you know, certainly in films of the last 20 years. And really, it's something like The Wire that comes close to, you know, the scope and majesty. And, of, and nuance. And yeah. nuance of, 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 what, of what he does. I mean, I... I, we can t- I it, it's between this and the insider when it comes to you know my pick for for best man movie and i one of the things i you know one of the storylines that always stuck with me even though it's kind of minor and even doesn't even come to play until relatively late in the movie is dennis hayward's you know you want to talk about consequences like yeah. it's uh... so heartbreaking mm-hmm like you yeah. know, you want to talk about all the different levels of criminals. Probably right. the lowest level of criminal, but also probably the most despicable, is his boss. You know, is- at that diner, and 
you you see the flip side. You see what would happen. Like his not only does his you know not only is his character interesting on his own, and not only mm-hmm. does he end up playing a role as far as a driver and all that, but that is exactly what Robert De Niro will never be and refuses right. to be. Mm-hmm. He refuses to go behind the grill. Um, in fact, you know the only time he does go behind the grill is literally you know breaking the rules to go back where only the staff are allowed <laughs> to be. Um, one of the, I love that scene because Robert De Niro sh- and shows no. Uh, uh, no, no, re- has, shows no regard for like decorum. He's no, he doesn't try to make an excuse to anyone. He doesn't even make eye contact with anyone else. Like he's just like, oh, I'm just going in the back because I know this guy. Um, yeah, I uh, think I think it's great when you bring up these points because it really sort of elevates, you know, a genre to more of an intellectual level. And you know, even even when Pulp Fiction came out, a lot of people were sort of just saying, oh, it's really cool, it's really fun, it pays homage to all these genres. There is, you know, there is actually interesting thematic things, you know, going on in Pulp Fiction involving redemption. And, mm-hmm. you know, that's that's something I think people, you know, can sort of assess now, you know, looking back and sort of, you know, separating the uh, cultural zeitgeist that sort of tapped into at the time. And I think, you know, now with me looking at Heat and, and hearing these points, too, it's it's I, I've always responded to, to protagonists who sort of equate like their, you know, uh, not necessarily their job, but what they're good at with, you know, their own self-identifying, you know, approach to life, just like their identity. You know, they're like, mm-hmm. I- I'm really good at this thing, and I have to keep doing this thing because it is a part of me. I am it this is thing. That. Yeah, I mean, and that's and that doesn't surprise me because you, Jim, like you are interested in psychology and you are going to school for psychology and you view everything through the lens of sight, you know, like – of yeah. psychology, like, and that is how you view the world. That is who. You, that is so much who you are. Uh, yeah, and it's weird when that happens. When I, I pick would, up on I that, would be, and later. that's, and it's such a recurring theme in in man's films. Yeah. You know, whether it's you know, thief or manhunter or um, you know, to yeah, William Peterson and Manhunter. We'll talk about that later, but good stuff. Or even to a lesser extent, you know. I am shocked that I wrote off Michael Mann, and that I, I almost want to go back and uh, erase any sort of negativity I've said in the past. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> um, after rewatching, Heat, I, I, I'm like, I do wonder what kind of person Michael Mann. And I no, actually, I don't have to wonder because mm-hmm. you know all the stories of Michael Mann is he's obsessive and he like is you know he'll he is he does come you know it's it's funny that strange love you know inspired him to take milk because he does go to the kubrickian lengths Mm of he'll do 20 takes of a scene Mm -hmm. and he's obsessive you know he he operates his own camera because he's obsessive about how exactly things are framed and uh i like i watched a, a sort of a tv documentary about him uh that I was able to get through Netflix from a series called The Directors or whatever. But, like, and everyone's just mentioning, like, he knows at any given time what ca- the characters, you know, what character, you know, what socks the characters are wearing. And right. they're like, he reshot a love scene and, you know, left the Mohicans because the girl's hair wasn't right. And he spent three weeks working on Jim Belushi's Hawaiian shirt in, for mm-hmm. the one scene of Thief. Like, he is obsessive. And it is, and, you know, to an extent, I do think, like, a lot of that is not you know i don't think a lot of that is helpful for his films i think that is just like the only way he can express himself you know artistically is to have that level of control um there's a there's a very funny anecdote where he actually got jim belushi to uh get married a week later because 
uh, his Jim Belushi's wedding plans inter- uh, interfered with the shooting schedule of Thief. So he he called Jim Belushi's fiance and he got her to agree to get married a week later. Like so like it you know these it it's you know it's pretty clear why man is obsessed with these kinds of people in that he you know that the job becomes him and that he he completely envelops himself in a film and that's why he doesn't release films every year or even every 2 years. It takes him a while and um and sometimes pride can kill you. Now I do want to talk about the uh, I do want to talk about two things. Uh, first off, my biggest complaint about the film, and probably about you know Michael Mann's work in general, is he is not good at depicting relationships between men and women. Uh, oh yeah, we even got an email sort of uh, talking about that particular um, flaw, if you will. I yeah, I kind of would agree. I mean, uh, the I don't I don't get a sense, uh, you know. That of chemistry, if you will, you know, sort of simplify it between uh, Amy Brenneman and Robert De Niro, mm-hmm. and yet, you know, it's also I don't know if it's necessary to really be invested in, you know, in in the love story component. I think it is though. Yeah, and I I, I would disagree. Mm-hmm. I, um, I okay, go ahead, Jim Brandon. No, go ahead. I was gonna say like to me the whole idea uh, for both Al Pacino's character and Robert De Niro's character is. This is what they're leaving behind, and for the for it to work emotion, you know, to resonate, you know, on an emotional level, you need to understand what it's costing them. And I think when, you do, though. I mean, when I Robert, don't think, but I don't think Robert De Niro has any chemistry with Amy Brennan, and I don't think. Yeah, he, but I still felt like you know once you know he approaches the car and Caesar, and you know you know what he's leaving behind. I still thought that was powerful. I, I think you know it, but I don't think you feel it. I don't. I mean, I, at least I. I know it. I know what he, Michael Mann, is doing, but I don't feel it because I never felt anything between him. So when, so when Robert De Niro says, you know, let's run away together, me and you, I, it's worth nothing uh, without you there. It, it, it doesn't work as well as it would if they actually had a relationship that I bought. And the same mm-hmm. with Al Pacino's character. If his, if um, I think Michael Mann has empathy for his wife. Um, and there's something that I think is important to sort of distinguish is that I do think he has empathy for female characters. I think he, you, you said know, Michael Mann has empathy for his own wife, for Al Pacino's wife oh, okay. in the film. That makes sense. Um, I think he has empathy for it, you know, because whether or not, you know, the, you know, whether or not it's Ashley Judd who stands by, you know, her man by warning Val Kilmer mm-hmm. at her, you know, sure. at the detriment to her own life, never seeing him again, um, and not. You know, but what's great about that is that she gets away with it, and I think it's you know she she puts one over on the cops, and I think it's one of the. You can do a movie that's completely dark where where nobody gets away, but I think one of the reasons that makes Heat so enjoyable and so rewatchable is that you know at least you know somebody you know that it, it's a very natural conclusion for De Niro's yes. character, but you also you know you have that well at least one of the guys got away. It's kind of like. It's kind of like the four kids at the end of the wire, where you're like, just uh, you're you're waiting for one of them to get out, and while it might, might not be the one that you like, you're just glad that somebody was able to, you know, escape. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. Um, and I and I I like that man is able to do that without it being preachy, without it turning yeah. into no one crime doesn't pay. Black, you know, like he. Mm-hmm. I think the characters come to natural conclusions, but. I think I think Ashley Judd suffers for standing, you know, for standing by him, and I think that 
I and I think that Al Pacino's wife stuff suffers for betraying him. Um, I think he has empathy for the fact that these women are in no win situations, mm-hmm. but at the same time, um, I don't think he spends enough time on them as 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 people for it to really resonate. Um, he doesn't do that for sure. I I think he's more. I mean, you know, he's invested. Very, he's more invested in the he, male psyche, right? Component. And that's and you know, and I think for for the most part, it it serves him well because of the kinds of films he makes. But I think in this case. Um, and I'm not even saying that the emotional aspect doesn't work. I'm just saying it doesn't work great um, just because none of the relationship – I, I don't really – I understand intellectually the loss, but I never feel the loss um, mm-hmm. because I never felt the relationships there to begin with. You actually want Michael Mann to come over and feel you. Yeah, you know, and that that, yeah. that makes total sense to me. You want like, like you know a little back yeah. rub. He's a he's an attractive man, and I have a hurt shoulder. So yeah, yeah. that makes sense. Uh, so you know, just a little rub down, you know, not thera- therapeutic level. Um, no, okay, so therapeutic. But level. but you disagree, Brendan? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, the the relationship between uh, De Niro and Amy Brenneman works. I'm not a huge fan of, of Amy Brenneman as an actress, like period. So, um, but I think it's clear. At least he sets it up with the understanding that by the time they meet that they are both pretty wounded and closed off people and so I think by the end we kind of understand that they care about each other in a way that goes it's I don't say goes beyond but ha- but is uh, is something different than just having chemistry or being quote unquote in love with somebody um, mm-hmm. I think that they're they, they recognize that they're too for lack of a better word, two lost souls um, or two people that have see the world in a similar enough way that they can have some type of existence together and find some sort of peace together. Um, and I think when he says to her at the end what he says, that's what he's trying to say. Um, and so I don't necessarily think that you you would need, they need to have like quote unquote chemistry. Um, and I think the way that their relationship portrayed there is portrayed is is effective. Um, that being said, I, I can see your point. I just I guess I had a different read on my interpretation of the movie than uh, you know it seems like you did. Yeah. No. Uh, I... <laughs> <laughs> no. I think I think the only uh, flaw for me is uh, you know seeing Tone Loke and Henry Rollins. Trying to act. Well, Henry Rollins doesn't really act. He just uh, stands there and know, cracks his yeah, knuckles. I know. I f- sometimes that like distracts me a but little tone, bit. But Tone Tone Logan is, does a legitimately bad job. I mean, it's a very short scene and it's very insignificant. It doesn't hurt the film, you know, very much at all. But I think Tone Logan is is genuinely a bad actor. Uh, and except in Fern Gully. Except in Fern Gully, he's amazing because <laughs> he has that weird yeah he's that weird rap song about eating little things. <laughs> and of course blank check uh, oh my god uh, you know I know I have a complete no that's the only two other Don Loke movies I can remember Ace Ventura Pet Detective oh that's right why did they try to cast him as like a police detective like <laughs> he's on a recurring role on uh, on TV's Bones as a, as a, chi- as a bartender who owns a, a Chinese restaurant oh okay well hmm. there you go interesting okay um 
kind of a wild thing. So, I, and again, I wouldn't even say it. Uh, I, unfortunately, uh, I do want to apologize to Eric, so we're not going to be able to get to uh, his full email. Um, but There's we do a app- lot there. We do appreciate, we appreciate getting it. it. Oh, I read it, and I, was, and I actually discussed it with him you know, on my Facebook beforehand, and it helped me form my own views. So thank you, Eric. But, um, I, I mean, again, it, this isn't a deal breaker. I, you know, I still think this movie really works, and I think the greatest uh, sort of you know, proof of that is I cannot watch the ending, namely like the last like twelve seconds of this film, uh, without crying. Oh, I agree. I, I, it is amazing. Um, and again, I really do appreciate that Michael Mann, despite being very interested in facts and very interested in details and very interested in wanting to get this realism right, and you know the gunshots of that of that gunfight in the street sound right and everything. Mm-hmm. Like, he knows when, okay, right now I'm going into pure thematic material where everything that matters, like, the story has played its course. There is no more story. All that, all that's left to be summed up now is all thematic. So he, so, you know, he is, you know, intelligent enough and has the instincts enough to abandon sort of this procedural, ultra-realistic setting to go to this very surreal uh, airfield where... You know, the lighting is very surreal and, you know, there are lens flares everywhere and that sort of slow every, you know, two minutes or whatever, the the light getting brighter and brighter and getting just unbearably bright, um, you know, sort of pulsing, which is... And the, natu- again, and the natural sounds of the planes hovering, like, right. just going by. It's- it creates a very surreal and dreamy kind of experience and it also echoes what uh, Robert De Niro talks about Amy Brennan on the beginning where he says that the, you know, L.A. reminds him of the, you know, luminous coral or the (laughs) like that is that is literally what is happening at the end of the film is it's it feels it doesn't you know, nothing feels mechanical. It just feels uh, like sort of a natural extension of where the characters are in their heads Um, and everything about the, the final showdown between them has nothing to do with the plot. And, and you know, to it's really just everything about. What yeah, is said, being said about these characters? Last seventeen seconds, uh, and, I, and I can I couldn't agree more. And I'm gonna get I'm getting overwhelmed to think about it. Yeah. He takes his hand. Yeah. I mean, yeah. It's 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 one of those ending, and then that that song by Moby just kind of comes up. Which Fucking is Moby, just, man. Yeah. Yeah. Southland a, Tales. It's a beautiful, beautiful song. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I I have not heard, apparently, like, it was sort of a late replacement for a piece of score that the guy who did the score for the rest of the film did. Right. Um, but, and it's, it is such a beautiful song, and it's used so well, and that, and you get the, yeah, it's, it is no longer about, you know, it's no longer about Al Pacino doing his job as a detective. It is about <laughs> Al Pacino. He's done, he's done his job. At that yeah, point. it is. It is about Al Pacino facing the fact that he killed Robert De Niro, but in killing Robert De Niro, he proved, you know, like Robert De Niro is dying, but also dying with him is, you know, like they both proved in that final shootout that they are just what they are good at, and they cannot yeah. rise above it, and they cannot change themselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so Robert De Niro dying is, you know, it isn't, you know, uh, first, you know, probably a couple times I've seen, I saw Heat. I don't think I necessarily got, 
you know, why Al Pacino grabs his hand other than it being kind of a dramatic thing. But it is, like, it's a very personal thing for that character mm-hmm. to see this other person, this, you know, this like-minded soul, uh, you know, being, you know, strung to the very end and dying because of him being exactly, you know... Of, he of, sees himself. Yeah, no, exactly. And in, it's, in the, in the, and it's so moving and... Obviously, that you know, it was. I bet on. I bet on set, or you know, they they were just thinking, you know, we are two of the greatest actors ever. Let's, oh my sh- God. let's shake hands at the end of this. movie. Yeah, no, that's why they shot it because yeah. they're just mm-hmm. so full of themselves. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, they're and it's it's so powerful, and especially with the music. And I do want to say, I think Michael Mann often makes mistakes with music. Mm-hmm. Um, I oh, we're going to talk most, about that. Probably most pointed with Collateral and Miami Vice, uh, where he puts like these Chris Cornell rock songs. And I have nothing. There's nothing wrong with Chris Cornell, mm-hmm. but he's got a great voice, right? But the problem is his voice is very emotive, and there is no subtlety to Chris Cornell's voice. And when you put that in a movie, it's just like it. It has the same <laughs> sort. Yeah, it is that Patton Oswalt sort of voice because it has that same effect. If you just put like. Bob Seger in a song like it's just so over the top and emotive that if you ever just want to make me laugh, just do a Patton Oswalt <laughs> yeah do homage. Um, and I think there's I think even the the pop song I think it's worked better in Manhunter, but even the pop song that sort of goes on while Tom Noonan is watching uh, his, his yeah. blind love being walked to the door. I think that even feels a little out of it's, place. It's a little bit like Wang Chung and To Live and Die in L.A. At times, I think there's even a few sort of guitar riffs in Heat that I don't. But for the but for the most part, the music in Heat is perfectly utilized. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it actually overcomes that uh, problem. Uh, that man. We can sort of segue into the next film because oh yeah, I do, have, a, an, I do have an issue with the, the music. Yeah, the music that. of the next film is, is unfortunately is but not it's, as. But good. it's one of the only issues I really have. Yeah, again, no, we're going to get into this. I'm looking forward. To I'm this. really looking forward to talking about. It. So let's go ahead yeah. and talk about the insider. Insider, ready to speak the truth. And I want to go on the record. A reporter who will help him reveal it. What does this guy have to say that threatens these people? Together, I was told... Don't talk! Who is this? They will risk everything. Because where there's smoke, there's fire. Al Pacino. He's only the key witness in the biggest public issue in history. Does he go on television and tell the truth? Yes. Are we going to air it? Of course not. Why? Because the more truth he tells, the worse it gets. Russell Crowe. I have to put my family's welfare on the line. My girls are crying. My children need me. You wish you hadn't come forward? You wish you hadn't blown the whistle? The movie critics call deeply moving. I fought for you and I still fight. A powerful edge-of-your-seat thriller. It will pin you to your seat. The best film of the year. Nominated for five Golden Globes. You go public, nothing will ever be the same again. There's Dad on the TV. So after the success of Heat, Michael Mann followed up that crime action thrill ride with a different type of action film, in my opinion. It's an action film of words and internal conflict and intellectual debate. And, oh my God, that's that's exactly what uh, I gravitate towards in uh, in, in, a, in a drama. So this film is based on the true story of a 60 minutes television segment as seen through the eyes of a tobacco executive who was recently fired from his job 
Jeffrey Wigand is his name. And this Wigand. No, that's okay. I I prefer (laughs) to be corrected, believe me, because I'm not always good with pronunciations. Uh, The 60 Minutes story originally aired in November of 1995, and I believe I actually had seen that. And it, it was aired in a completely different form because of objections by the owner of CBS, who coincidentally also owned a tobacco company. And the story was later re-aired, unedited. That, he, I don't think they owned the tobacco. It was they oh, were doing well, a deal. According to Wikipedia, maybe okay. that's maybe they they sort of wrote that inaccurately. But uh, I, the, they later re-aired the story in 1996, and uh, the truth sort of got out there about what was going on. Um, and this is uh, this was a movie that I actually had seen um, probably on video when it came out, and I I was enthralled i was absolutely enthralled with this movie then and i still am to this day it's 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 again like i said it's one of those movies where a lot of people are having um incredible conversations they're sort of dealing with their own ethical you know issues throughout every decision that they make and then they have to think about well if i make this decision what is how is it going to affect my family how is it going to affect you know, the public, how is it going to affect, you know, so many different, like the idea of interconnectivity really plays a role in media, in corp, you know, in capitalism. Uh, this movie sort of dives into all these things without ever being preachy, in my opinion. It reminded me of like a Sidney Lumet film. Um, you know, I, I have issues with network just basically because there is that sort of um, screaming at the audience approach to dialogue that I don't always enjoy, but here it's it's really understated. I think every performance is 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 excellent, and it is interesting to see you know Christopher Plummer's portrayal of Mike Wallace now in uh, you know in so recently after uh, Mike Wallace's passing and having a completely uh, different response to later in the film and just sort of seeing. You know how Mike Wallace approached journalism. I thought that was really powerful to see. What, what's crazy is it came out in 1999, and it does feel like specifically a eulogy, um, especially that For, scene yeah. in the hotel room. Oh God, yeah, I know. I was sorry, like, like it, like the portrayal of Mike Wallace is definitely not entirely. You know, it's, he's definitely not portrayed as a saint. No, Though I did. I watched a, the 60 minutes after he died, where it was all just a tribute to Mike Wallace, and mm-hmm. they pretty much all said the same thing. Like everyone is like, "Yeah, we all had arguments with him. He w- he could be an asshole sometimes, but it was important." Definitely. Um, I think I think you know. I'm sorry. Go ahead, Brendan. Oh no, I mean I. I uh, what's What's interesting about that is is the film opens with uh, kind of a detour in. Al Pacino's character uh, trying oh, to set yeah. up an interview with a, I believe it's uh, the Ayatollah of Iran, or it's uh, it's a, a Middle Eastern leader, um, and it's considered a big coup for for Mike Wallace. And then it ends on a very down note, and I mm-hmm. think that it has it really is a eulogy, not just for for Wallace, because I know that when I heard of Wallace's passing, the insider and you know his decision. As portrayed in that movie, um, were the first things that I went to. Um, but I think that the film kind of functions as a, as a eulogy for uh, the the news business in general. Because yeah. when Good these point. events happened, uh, it was a, a state of transition for for the for the the telev- for television news and as you know, so forth and so on. 
and it's just it, it's very sad uh, to to look back and be like those last lines, which get more powerful with every passing year. Is you know where where Lowell says, "What got broken here doesn't get put back." Um, and you know you look at it and you look at everything that happened that, that, that's happened. You know certainly over the last decade and how the news media has reacted or not reacted to certain things, and you just wonder, you know. What if things were different? So, especially pre nine eleven, like that was yeah. very uh, forward thinking of the film. It's very mm-hmm. I, I can't think of the right word, predictive or whatever. But it's you know uh, pre I, I to me it, this feels like, but it does feel like sort of a love letter journalism, and mm-hmm. it I mean it it it's almost unfair because it owes so much to you know the films that came before it that were this kind of you know, procedural journalistic, you know, investigation films such mm-hmm. as you know, such as all the president's men. But I think it even surpasses mm-hmm. all of those just because, um, I think I, I think it gets the char- character so right. Um, there was mm-hmm. a, sort of an interesting thing in the uh, you know the direct you know the direct watching the directors or whatever uh, um, documentary that I was talking that I mentioned earlier. Where Al Pacino, uh, you know, mentioned that this is an extremely different role for me, probably the most different role for me since I, you know, since Dick Tracy, um, because I've never gotten to play an intellectual. And oh wow, that's like a good point. it's true because like because hmm. Al Pacino is always, you know, he's always very confident and sure, and you are always convinced that he is, you know, I mean, except for something like Dog Day Afternoon, where he's playing, you know, very pointedly the opposite. Like his intel, his intelligence is never questioned, you know. But he never did get, you know. He makes himself perfect in the role, but he never did get to play intellectual until this point. And it's kind of, it's, it's more kind of an internalized approach to it. And that's, it's interesting to see that, you know, and 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 also get get the feeling while well, you know he he you can you can sense that he's thinking, and you don't need to necessarily like get that externalized in that, that actor's kind of way, especially in that first uh, hotel room scene. Yeah. Where uh, where he's just he's just trying to decode these you know sort of you know flame retardant you know cigarettes or whatever results and Jerry Wygan makes the mistake of slipping oh I can't tell you more than this and you just <laughs> see this you know very subtly you see this sort of light bulb go off in Al Pacino's head of oh what more is there and you see that and it's great and there's a lot of sort of you know the way it's sort of love letter journalism not only because what Al Pacino did was important and that, or, you know, what Al Pacino's character, I'm sorry, I can't remember her character's name, but Lowell Bergman. Yeah. What Bergman does is important and not just because he goes to great lengths to do it, but there's a lot of little things that are just, you know, that, uh, that just portray what a great journalist he is. And again, these are the kind of details that, you know, man does so excellently, um, where, you know, man makes sure to always know what, you know what a person does in their job because he he's able to make them look so good. For example, like even late in the film, while uh, you know while shit has really hit the fan and no one knows if anything's going to go on, Bergman is editing another show mm-hmm. while he's fielding calls on this one, and he's like, and that sort of and that's one of the things that always fascinated me most about sort of the world of journalism and excuse me newspapers and stuff is that. You have to be able to be focused on so many things at once. Mm-hmm. And you have to be able to walk through a room and scream at four different people as you pass them, 
Mm-hmm. You're like, I need this by this time. What are you going to this? Have you got this for me? Like, you need to be aggressive and there's a, good a whole, multitasker. Yeah, there's a whole scene where he where he is. Uh, I believe he's at this point in the film. He's trying to field. Uh, trying to feel Wigan's innocence and like during the whole time he's complaining about the cameraman getting too many shots of horses like it's such <laughs> a such a perfect detail and it's and it you know and it's not just a de- you know it's not just uh, a, you know a comic relief it is a testament to what kind of person a journalist is and what mm-hmm. kind of focus they have to have and again this is the kind of focus that Michael Mann is you know interested in because this is the kind of focus that Michael Mann has as a director mm-hmm. um, and he's also again not just interested in what's going on um, you know within the uh, the, the um I guess not the architecture of the uh, of the plot. I guess you would say, but it's more of just he's interested in you know the the characters' internal struggles and how it affects the you know the the person's stability at home and how it's affecting the family. I mean, I I really respond to the fact that like oh let's let's not necessarily just you know go into you know the journalistic world or you know uh, big tobacco as that you know as you as they call it but let's go at home let's go home and see how he's dealing with all the shit that's going on you know i, I like that he's um sort you know mul- well that's a, that's not the word but uh, at least just all encompassing with a character you know what i mean like let's even if it seems um you know, extraneous or uh, like not ne- not necessary at the time, but it, I feel like it, it it eventually leads to something later in the movie. Eventually, you you know why we focused on something earlier, where well, whether if it's like his daughter or just something that seems minor, but it really plays a bigger role in how the character um, you know deals with something or you know why he is the way he is. I find that really. Like something that Michael Mann has done in all of his movies, even if I feel okay, they could have been shorter, just maybe by like ten or fifteen minutes. There are reasons why we're you know uh, visiting a character's background a little bit more than normal than what we expect at least. Well, and the characters are so clearly the best part because here's the thing: yeah. like these, this is the kind of subject that so many other directors would love to jump at. You know why? Because it is Oscar. Material. Mm-hmm. These mm-hmm. kinds of whistleblower, big, you know, little per, like story. this is literally like you want to see the flip side of how this could have turned out. Like watch Aaron Brockovich, you know, oh, yeah. where it could have well. been super cliche and it could have been like super like just hitting all those like little person verse stands up to the big corporation. Like could have hit those themes so hard and over the head. And it's about this and it's about Jesus Christ in the form of of Julia Roberts. <laughs> You know, like, like these are all flawed characters who don't get along. Like that, one of the greatest scenes in the film is that is that very brief scene, and it's almost kind of similar to the uh, to the uh, dining to the diner scene in Heat, where uh, Pacino and Crow are sort of sitting, and and Crow is trying to get an idea of who Pacino is, and. Pacino is not fucking having it, and it's just like, well, "What's your father do?" And it's just like, "Well, fuck my father!" <laughs> like, <laughs> and you like at that point, you see the radical lefty that Al Pacino is. Like, he's laid out his cards on the table, uh, and then you see sort of how kind of reserved and you know conservative and you know Wygand is, and you see they're very different people, and they they're not just oh, they're an odd couple and they're unlikely best friends. No, they don't. They flat out don't get along. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and there are yeah. no, mis- you know, he doesn't sugarcoat that at all. I mean, like some filmmakers might feel like, well, we got to give them, you know, uh, a clear person to root for, right? Um, and a clear person, and you know that I, I, do- I feel like that's dumb. That's dumbing it down for the audience. Absolutely, and this is the kind of material that it's that normally does get dumbed down for the audience because mm-hmm. it's Oscar bait. And I do love that this film was nominated for like nine Oscars or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, despite yeah. never being dumbed down, I think this might be my favorite mm-hmm. Russell Crowe performance. Yeah, no, well, it's great. What's What's amazing to me about Crowe is that when this movie came out when I was in high school, and it's one of those movies that kind of was like made me fall in love with movies uh, as a whole. And the real guy, the real Jeffrey Wagon, came to my high school, oh, wow. and I got to interview him for my paper for the high school paper. And it was awesome. He's a very nice man, et cetera, et cetera. But um, what's imp- what I, I take away from that is that if you were closed your eyes at certain points while listening to him, you really couldn't tell whether it was him or whether it was Russell Crowe. So, uh, yes, there's a lot to be said about mimicry versus impression versus mm-hmm. impersonation and things like that. But um, that kind of attention to detail that we've been, been talking about is, I think, very, very very impressive and, and such good scenes of confrontation yeah. too that's the oh, thing. And, and what's not what's uh since we're talking about like journalists being able to do everything let's not talk about let's talk about that while al pacino is dealing with this incredibly important case he's also figuring out that the fbi has found where the unabomber is living yeah that is one of those scenes where you're like wait what is going on mm-hmm. in fact that is actually like i, I do feel like I, I like that the film doesn't turn anyone into a messiah where it's like, oh, but I feel like it does maybe a little bit towards the end. Um, mm-hmm. I think the I think the scene in the hotel room where he's sort of hallucinating his girls playing in the garden yeah. or whatever is kind of a little over the top and a little pushing it as far as mm-hmm. like, oh, he's suffering so much. Like, I think <laughs> I think there's nothing that that include like that inclusion adds to the character. We already know he's suffering we already right. know that he loves his children and that he's missing them. Like there's, mm-hmm. um, and also the fact that like in the the final part of the movie, despite the fact that yeah, what got broke here, you know, doesn't get put back together is a is a great line, you know, and it, and it is a great theme and is a great sort of down note uh, mm-hmm. to to end the movie with. I do think that the fact that they end it with Al Pacino simultaneously like discovering. You know where the Unabomber is, and quitting um, sixty minutes because he his uh, morals are too high. You know, and mm-hmm. it goes against his ethics. Like with, like with, it ties them together within like the same fifteen second time frame. Mm-hmm. Is a little bit too much. Like, yeah, here's a guy you can root for. Right. Where mm-hmm. before then, the whole portrayal of him is he's a pushy asshole, and he did, and that part where you know they're having the ar- the argument, you know, they're screaming match where uh, Wigan's on the hotel and Pacino's on the beach, like, you know, Pacino defends himself going, oh, I've, you know, I just made it easier for you. I didn't push you in anything. Like, it's very clear that he pushed him into it. And then, yeah. like, there is that messiness to it, and which is what makes it so great. And there is that sort of, he was using Wigan, and he, you know, he he went, he, you know, he made up for it. He did right by Wigan. He went above mm-hmm. and beyond to protect him, but... Like that doesn't, mm-hmm. you know, he was using him and he did push mm-hmm. him into it. And 
I'm going to I'm going to completely screw this up, but there's an excellent very short book about uh journalism by a writer named Janet Malcolm that anyone that is interested in uh kind of journalism and journalistic ethics and and so forth should read uh I think it was originally a New Yorker essay, but she opens it by basically saying um any journalist who does not acknowledge that he himself is a liar and is inherently deceptive uh is not being honest with with themselves. <laughs> Uh, because she's talking about this uh, this murder case where the journalist assigned to cover it from the murder the accused murderer's perspective realized about halfway through writing it that he believed that the guy uh, that the, the guy he was covering was guilty, but then continued to like cozy up to the guy and be his friend. Um, so there's a lot of there's a lot to the idea that a journalist will maybe telling you one thing to get the story and the story that he's getting will compete will appear completely different once it's in print and on the air. Yeah, and 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 there is some acknowledgement of that um when Al Pacino is, you know, confronting his, you know talking to his wife and talking like sort of questioning why he's with 60 minutes and all that like and what it is has, he compromising what it has, his integrity? Right, and what has it made him and you know that sort of pressure and that kind of work schedule and that sort of Again, mm-hmm. I am my job. Right, exactly. Um, but I mean, and, and to be to be fair, I mean, the real old Bergman did basically quit sixty minutes after that, and has gone on to do uh. Frontline, and has done like a lot of like I think he his big thing after quitting sixty minutes was he worked with the New York Times to uh, uncover unsafe workplace practices, like folks that were violating workplace uh, safety standards, which was like a huge, huge thing. So he's actually, I think it's an example of, yeah, it's a little bit over the top, but in that case, it's it's kind of, you know, it's not realistic in that the, the, the real guy is actually kind of like that. I, and it's not, to me, it's not even necessarily that it doesn't, uh, you know, match up to real events. To me, my only problem with it is it doesn't match up to the tone and the sort of the themes of the story that went for it. And again, it's a right. small, it, it is not a deal breaker, but it no, is. No, I agree no, with it's what not. you're saying, yeah. Um, I agree. I think I just think it's almost inevitable. Any film is going to take dramatic license and sort of, not necessarily any film, but you know when it, when you're telling a true story, there's going to be elements that aren't exactly, you know, uh, exactly what happened, but or exaggerated or what have you, or even just like little tweaks to the character it's, himself. That's it's kind of like you know inevitable when you're adapting anything, even if it's just you know reality to a movie. There's but, a there's, I don't know. There's a quote David Simon. I don't, and I'm not going to be able to say it, so I don't know why I'm even bringing it up. But there's a quote David Simon. Diamond, David Simon always brings up uh, at the beginning of his books and stuff, where he's talking about like he apologizes because he intrudes into real people's lives, and he, you know, and he basically just, you know, he gives, he writes just enough lies so a complicated, you know, messy world and a messy life will become a dramatic arc, you know. And yeah, you know, mm-hmm. that is true. Like there is a the, you have to lie in order to, you know, give any you know if you to any to in order to turn the vast amount you know vast number of experiences and mood changes and events in someone's life and to turn it into an arc, you have to eventually be you know inherently dishonest, like you said. And memory of events is flawed. Like you, you know, it changes and. There is just no way to accurately depict something that happened just because, 
you know, your your brain sort of re- reorganizes it or, or twists it or changes the color of a car or any number of those things. What I, mm-hmm. One of the things I love about the movie is that uh, Wigan does not blow the whistle um, because he believes that um, that he needs to help the public, um, that he needs to protect the public health, that he need, you know that it's the right thing to do. He does it to spite, you know, like that is <laughs> yeah, that's so his great to me. His motivation yeah. is spite. His motivation is you're gonna fuck with me. I wasn't even doing anything, but now fuck you. I will. Like he is just being spiteful. Um, I love that. I love that about him. But he's still aware of what it can do to him and his family, and I don't think it's just all like a selfish act. Again, obviously. I, and again, I think the weak point of the part is his of the film is his relationship with his wife. Mm-hmm. I think his wife is very like one dimensional and naggy. Like there's a part where it's supposed to be like dramatic, where he's explaining to her that it will be okay that they're moving from their like lavish like house on a hill. <laughs> To a ranch style house, like <laughs> Maybe all of Michael Mann's characters need to go to marriage counseling. Well, no, no, not only that. It's just like, are we supposed to have that much sympathy for this rich person who is now less rich? Like he's still living in a ranch style house. Like he's still, it's st- like she's looking at this giant empty space and being like, I can't believe we're leaving this all behind. And you know, like it, it's sort of like, well, I'm I'm looking at it being like, I don't think I'm ever going to live in a place that big for all my life. Like, <laughs> this is not this is a weird moment to choose to show the suffering that goes on from the family. Uh, that was probably my the part where I uh, laughed the most was where they tried to make like moving into a smaller house seem like the worst thing that could happen to someone. Mm-hmm. This is not my beautiful house. Right, right. I know. No, I, I, as I stated uh, in the introduction, I'm the only thing that really turns me off from this movie, and I don't know what it is. Like I'm almost having, you know, a, a, a Pavlovian effect every time I hear the um, insanely operatic. Uh, I don't. I can't even specifically think of what brand of world music this would be. Although I am a fan. of... Of, like Middle Eastern, yeah, sure. I'm, a, but I'm a fan of the the the, fema- the female vocalist Lisa uh, Gerard of Dead Can Dance. There's a Massive Attack song. There's a Neubauten song in this movie. I love all these all these genres. I love this type of music. Listening to it on its own, for some reason, it's just really jarring in uh, a uh, true story drama for me. I think I'm willing to give like the ending of The Mist a pass just because. You know, a horror movie, I don't know, for some reason, like, you can have an operatic element, and the way that ending plays as, like, you know, apocalyptic dread, it seems to fit a little bit better, but it still turns me off to where I become too aware of the score, and it takes me out of the movie. There were definite moments in The Insider where the score did not complement the scene for me. Other people may disagree. That's just my own personal. I, sometimes I suspect that Michael Mann has like laser focused eye, but a tin ear. Like, <laughs> like he can't quite like there's just yeah. Like I said, like I mentioned before, there's just so many choices he makes with music that are just like really you're gonna do that. Like I thought you were like this whole film was all about building this mood and this tone, and you're gonna mm-hmm. you know shove Chris Cornell or you're gonna just. You're gonna drive just, by a car just have fire with Middle Dream Eastern. do everything. Yeah, yeah. That's fine. At this point, the recording cuts out. 
Due to difficulties beyond our control, both technical and biological in nature, the rest of the podcast was lost. What you were about to hear was recorded the following day, over Skype. Unfortunately, Brendan was unable to join us. We apologize for the inconvenience. I do want to talk about uh, Christopher Plummer's uh, performance real quick. Yeah. Because it is it is amazing. Um, one of the sort of amazing things about this movie is um, how it's not just... Uh, you know, it's not just Pacino and Russell Crowe who, you know, are full characters. Um, Mike Wallace gets kind of like a surprisingly, you know, you know, apt, uh, like full arc and everything. And and I, I've said before that, you know, one of the reasons I mean, I I'm definitely will go on record as saying I hate biopics. I just despise them because they are just a combination of two little tricks. One of the tricks is someone doing an impersonation yeah. and the other trick is um, just picking out the highlights of someone's life and then s- loosely stringing them together as a movie. Um, you know, there, obviously there are exceptions, but the exceptions are the ones that go way, you know, they're, they, I think the inherent, you know, something like uh, I'm not there or Ed Wood, they work because they diverge. Or, yeah, whereas, or like American Splendor too. Well, right. No, exactly. But the fact the fact of the matter is a vast majority of biopics, uh, you know, even if they do focus on, you know, one, you know, even if they don't focus on someone's entire life, they do tend to just be little more than an impression. Mm-hmm. Uh, they create a they, fully dimensional character all on their own. And uh, Christopher Plummer, I, I think one of the things, too, that he sort of captures very well about Mike Wallace is like he has this obviously a great you know, uh, TV personality, but he, he, he just has this way, a very unique way of, um, interacting with, um, you know, with the person he's interviewing he's like, he, at moments he has like these, mo- uh, pauses just to let, you know, a moment of, uh, breath, if you will, between the two people, just like, you know, have a moment to reflect. And I think that he captures that very well, but also just being able to be assertive and uphold journalistic integrity. And he sort of captures that really well without being, you know, without it being an impersonation. No, absolutely. And it's, and I've said before that the only person I've ever felt did a dead on impersonation and did a full blooded character, uh, was uh, Martin Landau for, you know, being Bella Lugosi and Ed Wood. And I think this is, uh, another actual uh, instance of that. Yeah. Oh, good point. Definitely. I mean that whole you know that whole scene in the hotel room. You see Mike Wallace when he's cocky. You see Mike Wallace when he's down. You see Mike Wallace when he's angry. You see Mike Wallace when he's you know defeated. You see Mike Wallace when he's victorious. And this isn't a movie about Mike Wallace, but you see every side of him, and it doesn't and it's not a uh, and you know and it's not bullshit. <laughs> yeah. You know. No, uh, I mean like and you know Mike Wallace. He was he was an intense guy. I mean he could make people cry. He was well, kind right. of was cruel. I mean that was what he was famous. That was what he's famous for sure. being. In. Even the uh, I, I believe I did mention this earlier, but the sixty minutes episode, you know, yeah. that aired recently after his death, like it was all just people talking about. Well, I mean he was he was a weird, you know, he's kind of a provocative guy, but you had to hand it to him. He was very good at what he did. Like even in a fucking CBS eulogy. They couldn't, like, ignore the fact that he, like, just pissed everyone off. Oh, yeah. You know, like, that was who he was. And that's, I mean, you see that in the opening scene with the Sheik when his first question is, are you a terrorist? Like, um, and it's great. It is great. Uh, You know, there are a few other instances, like, uh, um, of, 
uh, very few, I'd, I'd say, where you see someone like the other one of the big flaws of biopics is uh, you have actors who are good at acting, pr- portraying people usually who are not good, who are I mean, who are good at something else. So it's so it's like, for example, um, you don't really ever feel Jamie Foxx performing in Ray. Right? Jamie Foxx yeah. is a fine singer, but he is not half the singer that Ray Charles is. So all of those scenes where he's performing as Ray, it's always a lot of cutting and it cuts to people's reactions going, wow, he's great because the audience he, definitely doesn't feel Then once he takes off it. those glasses, <laughs> I think even people in the audience, when I saw it, uh, they had like this um, startling moment of, oh, that's, yeah, that's, that is Jamie Foxx. You know, <laughs> well, my point is, you don't. There's no emotion behind it. Like, it's just, it's very clearly pantomimed, and that's why those yeah. kinds of scenes they always have reactions to like the guys in the studio booth going, "Whoa, oh god!" Like, which was so great, like, you know, parody to walk hard and all that, um, because that's not the reaction the audience has. But in this, you know, I mean, obviously, Mike Wallace, what Mike Wallace does is very different because it wasn't scripted. But um, Christopher Plummer does get to the heart of being that provocative without, you know being needlessly aggressive or anything like, you know, and I think it is exciting to watch him as Mike Wallace do interviews. Um, yeah. he, just he, as, he, he captures the fearlessness and like the confidence that, that Wallace seemed to have. Right. And that's, you know, and, and that's another thing too, is like more often than not, when I watch a biopic with somebody famous in it, portraying, you know, a real life person, I do have a like a hyper awareness at times of like that is somebody that is a famous person playing a character, but here it's much like with uh, Martin Landau, where I forget that I'm watching Christopher Plummer, you know. And I think that's the sign of a of a, of a great acting performance when you just forget and you just are able to separate yourself, or at least you know, watch a movie and forget that you're watching a performance. And I, right. you know, that's, that's a wonderful thing. And even, well, I mean, I, ideally that's what you do for all performances, but it's just well, so sure. rarely happens when someone is playing a celebrity. Yeah. I, but even in some, you know, seeing Al Pacino and when he has his big, and he doesn't really have that very much in the insider, which is something I don't know if I brought up yet, but it's a much more subtle and internalized performance for him. He has like maybe a few moments where, you know, how people used to say about, Jack, well, that's Jack Nicholson and he's being Jack and whatnot. And there are moments still to this day, obviously, with Al Pacino where you go, oh, he's being crazy over the top, you know, uh, dynamo Al Pacino again. And I like the fact that he's really dialed it down for, for the inside. I think, you know, pretty much the the, the main performances. Russell Crowe. That is his last. That is his last good performance, right? I think so. I really do. I mean, pe- I know there are going to be people who go, "Oh no, he's real good in Insomnia." He isn't good in Insomnia. I he's he mopey was, in Insomnia. I, he's very quiet. He doesn't go crazy in Insomnia, and he, you know, he mopes and he looks very grim in Insomnia. But he's not giving a great performance. So yeah. don't give me that shit. I agree. I agree with you there. <laughs> um, I think he he did, he might have won a couple of awards for. Uh, Again, it's another biopic. Oh, that's I think, right. Yeah, no, Jack I didn't see. I didn't. Jack well, Forkian thing. I think that's a different kind of biopic. That's more of a non. Like the difference between a biopic is you're not seeing someone. Like you, you ask someone to do a Jack Kevorkian impression, no one knows what he sounds like really. <laughs> yeah. Like unless unless they were really following the trial when it was happening that you know all that time ago, and they remember. It's not like when you watch Al Pacino. It's like I just see someone doing an impression of Jack Kevorkian. Like that's that. I think that falls more into nonfiction. And I'm uh, almost like. I'm very curious. It's not a movie that I'm like excited to watch, but I'm still curious about how I'm going to react to, uh, 
game change because I want to see Julianne Moore portray uh, Sarah Palin. And, and obviously when Tina Fey did it, it was for great comedic effect. And here, yeah. I, I'm, I'm curious. I'm, it's more. I'm, I don't think. I don't think Tina Fey did it to great comedic effect. I don't think it was SNL, funny though. <laughs> I don't think SNL has ever been good at political humor. I think their political humor has like pretty was, much always been it was really a, bad. It was a quality impersonation, though. You know, I mean, maybe it was just because she looked so much like her. That could be. That could be a huge reason. But I, I thought it was funny. You can you see know. Tina Fey doing that little Tina Fey smile. Uh, like the whole time, I didn't think it was. I don't think she's very good as. I don't. Well, I don't. Know. I'm, I'm, still, I'm not excited I, to watch Game Change because it has a despicable lead character, and I don't. <laughs> yeah, well, I understand. Uh, that's totally true. I think again. I think where you and I might differ sometimes is I, I. I do get excited about actors being in a movie to where even if I'm not excited about the the director or the plot or anything, if someone that I really admire watching in in most movies, someone like Julianne Moore, I'm I'm gonna just watch it just to see her, and I have sat through some crap, like like Chloe, <laughs> because of that, and I'm always like, yeah, I probably didn't need to see that movie at all. <laughs> I should, uh, you know, have some uh, limitations in my in what I choose to watch, but right. every now and then it's like I just get easily seduced. But even uh, Mike, you know, even Mike Wall, really quick, even Mike Wallace yeah. himself did say that. Uh, he gave he gave Christopher Plummer uh, a, a big thumbs up for his portrayal, and he uh, Mike Wallace produces say, uh, "I always open my lecture tours by saying I am not Christopher Plummer." <laughs> yeah, it's kind of funny. So that's um, no, I would say the one actor that I will just see every anything he's in is uh, John Cazale. John Cazale, eh? Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's pretty easy then. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, like any other actor, you can't just watch every. I mean, you literally have to be the kind of actor who only does four great movies in order to in order to make it worthwhile to watch everything the person does. And maybe that's just me. I'm not big on actors. I, can, uh, I, I have like you know a top five top you know a top five actors and actresses where if they're in something, I'm 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 like Jeff Bridges. I'm going to see anything Jeff Bridges is in. Yeah. Because I, I, I have a loyalty. And I bet you're loyalty. You think he gets royalties? Maybe. I'm sure he. I'm sure he's aware every time I go see one of his movies. And oh, that I'm gives sure. Him a, that gives him a good ego boost. Did you see him tug his ear during his octor <laughs> speech? That was just for you, Jim. I know, and you made fun of me for crying. <laughs> yes, I did. Damn you. Let, I, me, let me have my emotional moment. Because I, I don't know, my, my own personal f- reaction to him and is mainly because of my reaction to Fearless. And I think that it's one of those great performances in movie history that never really got any acclaim. And I, I mean, I realize Rosie Perez, we don't have to go on this uh, tangent right now. My, I'm just saying my feeling is uh, he earned it when he did a whole career of great films and (laughs) great performances. And the fact that the Academy granted him on some like shitty, you know, yeah. Res- wrestler imitation like that doesn't mean anything I know but it was just cool <laughs> I don't know it was just cool to see you him think, win you think, Jeff, you think Jeff Bridges I would have liked to have seen him win for a lot of other movies definitely like even the fucking what's that movie he was nominated for with Joan Allen no, no, no the the movie she was not. he was nominated with uh, Joan Allen uh, oh Joan he, Allen he play, oh play, no 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 yes I know what you're talking he, about he uh, the, Tron Legacy no he played the president or something, I think. I'd, I'd, I'd seen it, and I don't remember it. But Oh, uh, Stick It. 
the uh, gymnastics competitive gymnastics no. move. No, 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 no. Thailand? No, it was my voice. Surfs up. It was my. It was my fellow. It was my. It was my fellow Americans. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's it wasn't. How, Jim? Just tell me how was how was how was Jeff Bridges and Stick It? I did. You know, I I missed that one. Yeah. See, my loyalty is not as uh, tried and true as I thought. I'm a hypocrite. And uh, how was he in Tron Legacy? Didn't see that either. Yeah. Yeah. Well. Turns out you're not really a fan, are you? I think I will edit that out. <laughs> Just so I can look good and not hypocritical. No, I mean, you know, I can see everything. Hypocritical. So, yeah. <laughs> the Insider. Amazing. Absolutely amazing. It's, um, it's something that, you know, I, I feel like will we'll definitely hold up. 10 years from now and the fact that you know I've stuck I've had such a, a you know an incredible reaction to it when I first saw it and it still to me is one of the best very best movies about journalism um, right up there with all the president's men mm-hmm. and then another movie that I you know I, I, I would put up there is Shattered Glass which some people would argue with but I think it's a pretty phenomenal movie about journalism too yeah um, and and of course you know the few parts in Bruce Almighty when he's uh, oh yeah, it's the, well, it's just it's so cutting. Was that my first introduction to Steve Carell? It might have been. Now that I think about it, really? Was you that... never watched The Daily Show? Uh, no. He was great on The Daily Show forever, and he was great on Second City. But I mean, obviously, that you were less likely to see him because I think that was back in the mid nineties. Hmm. No, he was on The Daily Show for a long time. That's right. He was also on the Dana Carvey Show, which Charlie Kaufman wrote a few episodes. Yeah, and he's in Anchorman. Was that before uh, Bruce Almighty? I think it was after. Um, no, it was after Bruce Almighty. You're right. Yeah. But no, he's on The Daily Show for a while. So That's cool. Yep. Any other uh, Michael Mann movies you want to talk about, Jim? I definitely want to talk about Manhunter. What'd you think? <laughs> <laughs> instead of man, okay. instead of man eater. Yeah, no, 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 man no. Eater. I got it. And after after that, I'd love to talk about my hammy voice. Was that your Bobcat impersonation? It was Bobcat doing Bob Seger. Oh, wow. That was yeah. great. And uh, you can't tell, but Bob Hope is watching. It was a very, <laughs> very rich a lot of bobbin. impression. A lot yeah. of bobbin. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, Manhunter, I had seen uh, a very long time ago. Pretty, uh, right before I watched Silence of the Lambs because my dad was a huge fan of this movie and apparently I, I think he was a huge fan of William Peterson I don't think he's the greatest actor in the world at all um, but I, I think ma- mainly because of To Live and Die in LA and Manhunter um, yeah I was gonna say I was, I was just about to look out like what else is William Peterson good in I actually think he's good in a really <laughs> ridiculous movie that's a guilty pleasure and that's uh, Fear, Fear with Reese Witherspoon and uh, Marky Mark um yeah, that's it's 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 a ridiculous stalker movie, but I don't care. I still think it's it's pretty good. I think he's also good as like the agitated. Do you, did you catch him in Thief? Uh, yeah, yeah, to, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think yeah, a chance right. to finish Thief, but pretty early on, he's in a bar and he's that's like, right. "Hey, yeah. buddy." <laughs> and I don't think his line is even audible. You can just sort of tell by his gesturing what he's trying to say. Right. That was funny. Oh, it's interesting too. I mean, the uh, Thief opens really beautifully. Um, uh, 
it takes place in Chicago, actually. Mm-hmm. And you get a nice um, opening, not an opening shot, but later, after the opening credits, it's uh, sort of reminded me of uh, in um, in Manhunter, too, where there's just two guys talking, you know, by, by the beach and staring out at the lake, kind of uh, in sort of a moment of contemplation about what they're going to do next. And, uh, you know, here here we got, uh, you know, William Peterson playing an FBI uh, agent, but he's, you know, mainly a criminal profiler. And he literally can sort of read the minds, so to speak. Not not literally. i got to stop doing that, because that's one of those things that annoys people when you use the word literally, and you don't mean literally. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, no, I, he, he gets, you know, he, he, he understands the sort of serial killer mentality to where he can walk into a, a room and sort of gauge exactly what went on, and he uh, documents that and sort of has to you know, it's almost like he has this amazing gift, this great ability to decode the mind of a serial killer, but obviously that comes with, uh, you know, being haunted by a lot of horrible things that he's had to endure and experience. I would, I would actually say that is, like, pretty much the one part of the movie I'm not... I, like, I think it sort of gets to it. I mean, it definitely gives it lip service, but I, at what point do we feel him, like... Like, there's no scene like Al Pacino, like, holding the widow in heat, or not the widow, the the grieving mother in heat, or anything mm-hmm. like that. Like, we hear, you know, we see him getting upset when Hannibal Lecter is insinuating it and all this other stuff, but, like, what, like, we don't feel any, like, problems that arises from this. You know what I mean? I think, I, I think that's actually... I, I guess, again, Michael Mann's good at sort of subtly introducing and, you know, having it play throughout the movie. Just internal conflict of you know ex- of having to do have this job and being really good at it we sort of brought that up in the other movies well, right but i think he does it much better in heat than in this i, I would think- agree no i definitely agree with that i mean this is one of his earlier films and everything and maybe he just hadn't honed his craft at that point but at the same time he did thief beforehand which i, I think would say was i would better. say what I, yeah what i what i really love about uh manhunter is just how you know, it's very stylish, and the the tone is great, and the you know the pacing is great, and the editing is great, and like it's less uh, operatic than silent. Yeah, but it's but it is like it is very formalistic. Uh, sure. It you know it is very much uh, you know all about camera control and everything. Uh, at this point, Michael Mann had gotten to sort of where he goes with Miami Vice and Public Enemies, where it's sort of mostly handheld. Uh, you know, where the, the framing is a lot less specific, I guess would be the word. Yeah, um, he plays around with that uh, blue, a lot less controlled. blue tint as well. Yeah, I mean, yeah, and the colors as well. And then, of course, the switch um, is is great uh, from uh, William Peterson's perspective to Tom Noonan's. Yeah. The, I, the fact that, um, you know, one of the interesting things is, again, I don't think we feel the struggle that William Peterson feels. Like, as a character, he's very, you know... And, you know, his character is, is very uh, sort of stoic and, you know, doesn't really – except for that one part where he's running out of the asylum and, you know, like, does he throw up onto the grass or does he just sort of focus on I it? I think he does. Okay. Yeah. But, like, other than that, like, there's not a lot of uh, – you don't see how it actually affects him or whatever. You I, just... th- I think that maybe it's, you know, kind of a, you know, a, an easy way to depict uh, – 
not necessarily conflict, but just a sense of, uh, you know, because I don't really don't feel like he is going insane in the same way, you know, and like just the fact that he has his job, I don't think he is literally going crazy or it's dealing or it's causing depression or whatever. All right. What but do you I, think? But there is a dream sequence that's really eerie and sort of terrifying. Um, and he looks at, you know, a woman who could potentially be the next victim and there's like this image of her eyes being all whited out, or maybe they have mirrors. There's light coming. Yeah, yeah there's, there's light, light coming through her eye. It's like that. That freaks me out. That that that. So I mean, just having fever dreams in general. Maybe it's one of those tropes that we've come to expect, and it's kind of obvious at this point. Yeah. Um, but I, I just find that effective, even if we don't necessarily get which the, by the way is probably like pretty much the same dream that uh pacino talks about in the heat in the diner scene oh uh, yeah no that's true very true it's the same basic thing but um but no what i do like is the way the tone is established and the way you know both characters are so doggedly you know going through what they feel they need to go through mm-hmm. when the perspective for a significant amount of time switches to tom noonan's uh serial killer um, yeah, he seems just like, as interested in the there in is the no, it isn't some kind of like it doesn't throw ev- everyone off like it isn't some kind of uh, you know it isn't some kind of big you know uh, plot breaking moment to to switch our perspectives and that's just because the the tone of uh, you know and the equation of the two are, are are so controlled so well controlled and I think the Tom Noonan stuff is really the most interesting and I actually kind of wish. Uh, it was a film mostly about that because I, uh, yeah, I, I I felt that way too. I think he's again. I think he's good at Michael Mann is good with the procedural elements yeah. too, and I you know his attention to details we brought up, but not just to like you know uh, something like just dusting for fingerprints and sort of things you sort of come to expect in a uh, you know murder mystery or a cop procedural. Uh, I, I think he is just as genuinely fascinated or. He he doesn't neglect or he doesn't neglect the villain in a way that he turns into a caricature. He, you know, you, you sort of you get a lot of uh, being able not necessarily to empathize with the killer, uh, but you sort of no, I, I understand. You do empathize with the. I think that is empathy. You think so? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. You don't have to agree with someone to 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 be empathetic. Well, I mean, you just you understand his his plight. So right, to speak, exactly. you know, and that's and that's something that not every filmmaker is has that, willing to do. And it has that lush. And here's one of the things that fascinates me about Michael Mann is he seems to be a lot more like he will go on these kind of tangents that some other sort of the more controlled because I always I pictured him sort of in the the Fincher Kubrick school of filmmaking where it's just everything's all about control, absolute control, and details and and you know thousand takes and stuff. But he goes on these sort of flights of fancy, like the uh, the scene with the tiger is amazing. Yes, and, um, you know, like he he goes for that uh, those sort of stranger things sometimes, and I I always find that interesting about uh, his work. Also, uh, despite the fact that the actual color scheme is cold, is very cold. Mm-hmm. I don't think his movies are very. Uh, I don't think at least his good movies are very cold. No. Um, I think I think Miami Vice is extremely cold. Uh, yeah, we can sort of go into that. I mean, obviously. Oh, right, real quick, how great is the uh, in the, the God of, of Yes, I yeah, think it's yeah. fantastic. In the God of oh, it's, it's the whole sequence is so great. Yeah, uh, he's good. He's good at 
building intensity and his his last acts are just flawless to me just the way he executes things i mean in this case in in this case in this case for sure yeah for sure i mean i wouldn't i wouldn't say the same is true for even like the insider because i I do think it gets a little overblown histrionic towards the end of the insider but yeah yeah it's there's not necessarily a lot of subtlety and I, i i i guess maybe i was wired to expect that kind of an ending to that story with with the insider but it's also just surprising for me watching thief and heat pretty close back to back just the choice to dial things down and go subtle in the last right. act with uh, with confrontation cuz i'm so used to it being intensely over the top or you know things getting really overtly violent and he doesn't do that and i think that's really um Something well, and it, it's in a different way, but I would say it is the the final shootout between William Peterson and Scott Tom Noonan. Oh, like, no, here, yeah, no, I'm I, I'm mostly thinking you haven't watched the entirety of Thief, but no, I have you, not watched. You, Thief. you will see parallels between Thief and Heat. Okay, um, not necessarily like it's a one on one kind of a thing, but you'll 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 see what I'm getting at with that. All right, I don't have a lot to say about Miami Vice. Uh, um, I didn't. I, I tried watching it and I just couldn't get into it. Um, yeah, um, it, it was very heavily pushed for by uh, our good friend, you know, Kurt Halfyard. And uh, I'm sorry, Kurt, but uh, you're wrong. <laughs> it, it is just it's a just it's a totally empty movie with ciphers that it does nothing interesting uh except for the fact that it is so fucking um boring like i guess i guess the fact that it is so resolutely boring and is so committed to boring the audience that's Uh, that's that's how i felt with uh public enemies when i saw it in the theater yeah well public enemies just sort of felt rudderless like i didn't know and at no point do i know why i'm supposed to give a shit yeah. I mean, again, I haven't, I didn't finish Public Enemies. Maybe it gets resolved, but at no point did I know why I was supposed to give a shit about John Dillinger or about Christian Bale's character or where they were going. Like, I don't know. It just, I didn't like. But, but Miami Vice, it's just there's like no incident. Like nothing happens. Like I bet you could. I'm kind of surprised you didn't like it, Jim, because it's pretty much identical Here to we go. Uh, House, Here we House go. Devil in that regard. Here it's we very go. small House of Cards. It's all style and it's all empty posturing. It's totally it's the house of the devil of crime movies. I you know, and I can and and it is specific. Like I understand why people like it cuz it's specific. You know, I understand why people like insane clown posse cuz if you're into that, that's like that is exactly what you're into, you know, cuz it's it's so specific and there's nothing else like it. And I and you know, Miami Vice sort of goes about its way. Like you know how uh Tubbs and Crockett have no chemistry and they like don't really have any scenes together? Hmm. Uh you know that like like all these things where it's just like, oh that's an interesting choice. <laughs> it's it's completely the wrong choice, but you know, it's definitely a different choice than anyone else would ever make. So I guess I understand why some people would defend Miami Vice even though it's horrible. I kinda uh, wanna have a bonus episode with you and me talking about House of the Devil and the Innkeepers. Yeah. I mean that's something we don't necessarily have to bring up I didn't, right now, but I didn't I didn't mind Cabin Fever too so much, but then again, maybe that was the parts I didn't mind were the parts that were taken out of Ty West hands. Maybe uh, like yeah. we, he turned in Cabin Fever too. It was like uh, Noah Sagan sitting on grass mm-hmm. uh, and like smoking a cigarette, and you watch the whole cigarette burn down, and then he like lights another cigarette and he burns a cigarette, and then uh, he goes and he fills his car with gas, and uh, then he then he goes home. 
And, uh, you know, like he, he takes a shower and we watch the shower in real time and then he goes to the prom and then finally something happens in, like the last 10 minutes of the movie. Like that would that to me would be that that's how I foresee Ty West doing. <laughs> so, OK, well, no, right. house, everyone house the devil is horrible. And no, if you like not. it, rethink it, rethink your life. What are you doing with your life? <laughs> what are you doing with your life if you like House of the Devil? Yeah, no, I'm sorry. I hate. I hated my. I mean, it's it's hard not. It's hard to hate a movie that failed. Box the you know at the box office, and also you don't see it everywhere. And there are very few people who will defend it. Like, it's not like oh, Miami Vice, the bane of my existence. But I did hate watching it. So, I'm curious uh, since we didn't. I mean, we could sort of get close to wrapping things up. But I did want to discuss. Just, um, I I didn't really do any research. Um, and maybe, I don't know if this was brought up in the documentary you watched about him, but what was sort of the motivation? I mean, obviously a lot of filmmakers are transitioning over into digital territory and he seems to have found his niche right now after, after, uh, I guess collateral was his first movie taking that approach. Well, uh, it was, um, uh, the documentary was made in like, 1999 or something or year 2000 so it's it ends with the insider so there's nothing about digital but um and i I did not do any research either Um, yeah i'm just curious because it's it's i don't i i'm still very surprised that was like the one constant throughout watching public enemies was like why make this choice why what what did it serve i mean some people sort of think it creates a more immediate feeling of being right there and I don't know. To me, I become again very hyper aware of. Oh, this is uh, you know. Well, uh, here's the thing, and I think maybe this is something. And again, this is all just conjecture and theory, but I think this might be something Michael Mann's kind of because really there is nothing inherently cheap about uh, more than 24 frames per second, mm-hmm. which is what video is, which is what you respond to when you watch video and you, it looks cheap. Um, is just because all of our associations with video are home movies and bad TV and, you know, like direct to video movies from the back in the eighties and stuff. Like, so when we see that kind of movement that goes beyond, uh, you know, that goes beyond 24 frames per second, it, it just registers as cheap to us because we're used to 24 and maybe Michael Mann's trying to combat that. Maybe Michael Mann's trying to saying just because this aesthetic is associated with things that are cheap does not make it inherently, but it doesn't really help with action scenes in particular, because, I, I mean, that's the thing about Public Enemies is everything was so dark, and I couldn't tell what was going on. And so I didn't see... I didn't watch Public Enemies. I watched about 15 minutes of Public Enemies, and I, I had it. Um, I mean, but I, I, the, the, you, you get a more sense of, like, you know, oh, there's bullets whizzing by, and the sound might be better, I think. Maybe. No, but. video has nothing to do with sound. Yeah. That's what I said. Um, but I'm just no. saying that I don't understand... You know, we I don't know if there's he's got anything new coming up, but uh, I I think it's also it's just it's a different way to work too. I think it's easier to light video. Yeah. Oh yeah, no, I mean Soderbergh definitely. You know, he's done that. Right. Well. Oh, God, did you see, did you see the? Uh, yeah, Soderbergh is definitely deep into red territory. Did you see the uh, Magic Mike trailer? Oh no, no, I haven't yet. It has that red. It has that uh, red camera thing where everything looks yellow. <sighs> Or everything just looks like someone pissed on the print. Hmm. <laughs> pissed on the. Well, I guess there's no f- actual, you know, film. I, I'm not a fan of the of the yellow at all. I'm not a fan of color. Yeah, I don't, I, I don't mind blue color. tints. I mean, that's the thing. I re- recently rewatched Eyes Wide Shut, and there's so much blue. 
um, well, highlights. that's surreal. That's a surreal movie. That's different. Yeah, I don't. I don't like when uh, you know you're trying to make a movie, you know, that's gritty and realistic, and so you give it, you know, a palette of sixteen, uh, you know, shades of gray, black, and brown. Like it's just, mm-hmm. it's it's ugly. And that's one of the great things I loved about the shootout and heat is, yeah. you know, that they don't do that thing where it's orange and teal, so all the colors pop and it's all contrast. No, like it's all they consistent. don't do that thing where. You know, and like that sort of Christopher Nolan thing that makes Batman Begins one of the ugliest movies I've ever seen. I can't believe it got nominated. I mean, I guess I can because t- different tastes and all that. But I think Batman Begins, his color scheme is so ugly and that sort of thing. And I like the bat about Heat and I did not like that about uh, Miami Vice. Yeah, I don't think I'm ever going to have the uh, enthusiasm to uh, watch Miami Vice just based on I'm the just saying I think you should I think it would be educational if you watch Miami Vice and House of the Devil back to back okay <laughs> I I still say that I mean we'll have this conversation at another point but there are a, 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 a many movies that I saw renting you know from a video store in the 80s that fit House of the Devil that aesthetic and including they, and including they, the boredom and I don't find okay. I don't find boredom necessarily a bad thing. I feel like I'm passively engaged for a little while, and if it leads up to something that I passively find... engaged is a euthanism for a nap, right? <laughs> Maybe. I just don't I don't know what it is. I'm like m- the way I process things. Sometimes I can watch, you know, something that's not necessarily like constant. You know, obviously I like a lot of slow burns. That's just no, 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 no. And I think and I think that's. And again, this is the, this is, uh, you know, the constant thing. It's like, it's not a, how's the devil is not a slow burn. It's a no burn. Um, a slow burn would be something like Halloween. A slow burn would be something like hour of the wolf where things are getting eerier and eerier and things are just sort of popping in through the shadows and you're not exactly sure what's happening, but you know that the character is going farther and farther down in house of the devil. She literally just sits around and dances. It engages my interest regardless. It does because I want to, there's, there's something going on dancing and you have a dancing house sitter fetish. That is what you have. There is something going on. And we're going to find out what it is eventually. And I'm, I, I'm, I'm with it. Okay, I'm, so if House of the Devil was five hours long and three hours of it were her sitting on a TV and no, you don't no, see the no, TV. No, 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 no. That's, okay, that's but, an exaggeration. But that's, I'm, it's not an, it is an exaggeration. That's not what it happens. But that is what you're saying. You're saying that's how movies work is that as long as you know eventually something is going to happen, it doesn't matter what happens in the interim. And again, I think that is crazy. There is an air of mystery – because, I mean, like, it's not like nothing at all happens until the last ten minutes of House of the Devil. Somebody gets shot. You know, she, when she goes to the house, the, the people that she's house-sitting seem kind of weird and off. And then and then what happens? Well, we're waiting for something to happen, and I, I don't mind that choice. I don't mind let's... Let, and the same thing kind of happens in Innkeepers, but there's more... I, I will say that there's more, there's, more, there's more vivid characterization... <laughs> There's more of a playful sense of humor in the innkeepers. Um, I think the characters are, are much stronger. Did you realize that like you're talking about nearly half of the film in which nothing happens? And I, not even okay, the first of all, first of all, it's I've not always... like the theme, it's not like the theme of House of the Devil is um, it's not like waiting for Godot. Like it's not like, oh, it you know, nothing happens because that's the point, because that's how life is. No. <laughs> it's a horror movie. And it's and it's not a thematically rich one. Maybe not. Oh my god! Okay, well, we, this has turned into the t- 
Ty West Slam Cast, which is actually what I should I should start. Cause, I think you should. Yeah. And we're going to get uh, him on the show, and we'll, we'll see what he has to say in defense. I would love to talk to him. Huh. I'm, I would love to hear, because honestly, the only person who confuses me is him. Like, I don't know what he was going for. Like... Um, are, I feel you know, like, good, I feel are, like good, as I was watching that movie, I knew exactly what he was going for because I'd okay, seen movies tell, like that tell, before. Tell me what he was going for. He was going for an early '80s horror okay, movie that okay. is very this slow. Is, yeah, no, 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 Jim, this this is what I'm talking about. Um, it, this is uh, actually something that you know I quote a lot, but this is Phil Phil Noble Jr., who is you know uh, who is you know a past guest and a, hopefully a future guest, and he's a great guy. He he of Ka- of um, not Kevin the Woods of uh, House of the Devil. He said it. It feels like someone watched a lot of horror movies from the eighties, thought they were all totally boring, and then decided to emulate them anyway. Like what is what is good about that? Like why I could emulate security cam footage, but unless I have there's a point <laughs> behind it, why does it matter how close to real I get? You know? Yeah. No, I mean, I've only seen it the one time, and I was. Because I knew something was going to happen, something crazy was about to happen, and I was willing to go with it, and it did remind me of movies I'd watched, you know, with my friends when they would come over. And maybe they were boring, but we we found fun in the in the boredom, I guess. You know, I don't so, know. So you thought that House of the Devil was so bad it's good, is what you're saying? No. No, I'm not. At all. Because you have to find your own fun, because it isn't. I was, en- I was totally engaged with it, even if... You just called it boring. Just called it boring. <sighs> I don't know how to say like for me boredom isn't a bad thing. I don't know how else to say that really, because I embrace boredom sometimes. I don't know, and I know that's not what you're supposed to experience when you're watching a movie. I realize that, but even with something like Somewhere, again, didn't find it boring. Okay, but you did find House the Devil boring. Well, yeah, I did find it boring, but I didn't mind it. Okay. All right. We will revisit this conversation in the future, I'm sure, because I I am positive that it it is not just that reason alone why I find it, you know, interesting. I think right. Ty, I think Ty West is a good filmmaker. I really do, especially like after Innkeepers. I think to be I think to be a good filmmaker, you got to make a good film. Well, he did. He definitely okay. did. I think I th- I will say that Innkeepers for me felt like a step up in terms of uh, characterization because he, you know, I aside from Greta Gerwig in House of the Devil, sort of you know having her moments. Um, the the lead actress in House of the Devil isn't nearly as vivid of a character as the uh, the the main ones in uh, Innkeepers. Like they, so you're saying they, that they're they, really good at they so crack the jokes. Yeah, like know. the characters in Keepers, they're really good at waiting for pizza. Like she was kind of as far as like waiting for pizza goes, she was eh, all right, C C C C plus at best. But they're like really good at waiting for something to happen. Well, that, there's plenty more of stuff going on in in, in Keepers. Okay, I I'd like to see it. I I will never complain about more good horror movies. Uh, I just question what people consider good horror movies sometimes. Um, I will mull that yeah. over for sure. Yeah, uh, it's just funny we revi- kind of revisited our conversation uh, about somewhere in the midst of all that because that was the one things when I went back and listened to the Rob Zombie episode is like, yeah, you know, boredom isn't so bad. 
It really isn't. And then you're like, okay, Jim, here's what you can do. With the well, next time you put on a DVD, you don't even have to hit play. Just watch the menu over and over and over again. Yeah, <laughs> I just found that so funny. Well, I'm, uh, a, I'm, a, I'm a I'm a hilarious guy, Jim. And these are nuggets of wisdom I'm dropping. You should you be picking them up and putting them in your little wisdom basket. I like, realize like that. A, like this... a migrant, like a migrant worker. <laughs> I'm almost like oh, that's that's horrible, horrible, horrible. I'm sorry. Remember, remember when this episode was supposed to be about Michael Mann? Remember, remember yeah. back then. Yeah, and now it's like super long. Um, <laughs> all right, which is next fine. Ep- next uh, next episode will be on David Fincher. You know, really quickly. Um, oh, I know we, right we, we should have done. Yeah, we should have asked Brendan too. Didn't think of that, but uh, yeah, he's 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 super busy, and we had technical difficulties and whatnot. So we'll get that um, and maybe post on the on the site too. Um, yeah, I'm gonna go with uh, my top three Michael Mann films: uh, Heat, Thief, <laughs> Manhunter. I'm gonna go uh, Heat. Uh... Manhunter. I'm sorry, Heat, The Insider, and then Manhunter. Oh, yeah. I, maybe I do like The Insider more than Manhunter. Stay tuned to the website when I decide. <laughs> yeah. No, next, I, I, uh, tough, next episode oh. will be on David Fincher with uh, special guest Ren Brown, who's great. Awesome. You, you heard him on the Wachowski Brothers podcast. Yeah. Uh, great. So I'm excited about that. Uh, excited to finally have some kind of excuse to watch Benjamin Button because I uh, certainly nothing in the nothing I heard about it made me want to watch it but now I have to so yeah, yeah. I guess I probably yeah. should rewatch that too but um I've I haven't rewatched Alien 3 in a very long time Oh man I used to be such a big defender and then I watched it again and it was one of those like moments of clarity hmm. <laughs> where it's where it's just like, oh god, what have I done? I do think there, I do think he gets a bad rap, and I do think people uh, get mad at Fincher for killing off. Uh, yeah, the two, and I, and that's my one of my favorite parts because I'm not a fan of aliens, and I don't like those characters very much. And mm-hmm. I think that whole opening, you know, sequence with the cutting to the credits and then cutting back is so fucking brilliant and creepy. We'll yeah. talk about. Oh yeah, definitely. It, it, it'd be interesting because I, I sort of gave it a pass too, and you know, again, may, like watching a movie sometimes a second time, and you get that you get to reevaluate it years later. You know, hey, maybe it'll happen with House of the Devil. Who knows? Because you were right about New Nightmare, so I, I'll, yeah. give, I'll give you that. You know, yeah. But I'm excited. Yeah, I think um, I think our main uh, two films of focus will be uh, Fight Club and Zodiac for those who. Uh, definitely want to rewatch those along with us because I'm pretty sure that's what we're set on at this point. Uh-huh. Yeah, awesome. So thanks everybody for listening and visit us at directorsclubpodcast.com. Uh, you can email us at directorsclubpodcast at gmail.com. And I'm over at Instant Gym on the Twitter. On Twitter, I am Ed Patrick Rapal. Excellent. Well, that'll about wrap it up. So Mm -hmm. thanks, everybody, for listening, and we'll see you in a couple weeks for the David Fincher episode. Goodbye. Bye.
She had a great yeah. ass. Yeah, yeah, no, no. 